Chapter 12 Germ Games War Games Genesis of the Biosecurity State Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Benjamin Franklin Many of us are pondering when things will return to normal. The short response is, never. Nothing will ever return to the broken sense of normalcy that prevailed prior to the crisis because the coronavirus pandemic marks a fundamental inflection point in our global trajectory. Klaus Schwab, The Great Reset, July 2020 I want to be straight with you. There will be no return to the old normal for the foreseeable future. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, World Health Organization Director General History of Bioweapons The United States began its first large-scale offensive bioweapons research during World War II in the spring of 1943 on orders from President Franklin Roosevelt as a collaboration between the U.S. military and its pharmaceutical industry partners. Pharma titan George W. Merck ran the Pentagon's offensive bioweapons program while simultaneously directing his drug manufacturing behemoth. Merck boasted that his team could deliver biowarfare agents without vast expenditures or constructing huge facilities. Another advantage of bioweapons, he remarked, was that their development could proceed under the guise of legitimate medical research. The intelligence agencies were involved in the top-secret program from the outset. George Merck's hands-on employee, Frank Olson, was an American bacteriologist, biological warfare scientist, and CIA officer. He worked for the United States Army Biological Warfare Laboratories, USBWL, at Fort Detrick with Merck and the U.S. military, developing the U.S. bioweapons and psi warfare arsenal. Project Artichoke was an experimental CIA interrogation program that used psychoactive drugs like LSD in pursuit of enhanced interrogation methods. The project was part of a larger CIA program exploring approaches for controlling both individuals and populations. Olson was involved with Project Artichoke with moral misgivings beginning in May 1952. After watching a documentary on Protestant Reformation leader Martin Luther, a conscience-stricken Olson informed his bosses he intended to quit the biowarfare program. Around the time of that announcement, Olson's CIA colleague, Sidney Gottlieb, head of the CIA's MKUltra program, covertly dosed him with LSD. A week later, on November 28, 1953, Olson plunged to his death from a window of New York's Hotel Statler. The U.S. government first described his death as a suicide and then as misadventure. In 1975, the government admitted its guilt in the murder and offered Olson's family an out-of-court settlement of $1,250,000, later reduced to $750,000, which they accepted with an official apology from President Gerald Ford 
and then CIA Director William Colby. By 1969, the U.S. bioweapons program had developed weapons of a nuclear equivalence, according to David Franz, who for 23 years served as commander of the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, USAMRIID. The principal limitation, Franz acknowledged, was the difficulty of managing bioweapons so as to prevent accidental escape. Ironically, Franz would later play a key role in the Pentagon-Fauci gain-of-function programs leading up to the COVID-19 pandemic. It all ended, seemingly, in late 1969, when President Nixon traveled to Fort Detrick to announce the closure of America's bioweapons program for moral and strategic reasons. America signed the Biological Weapons Convention in 1972, forbidding development, use, and stockpiling of biological weapons, and mothballed most of its labs. But the agreement, a supplement to the Geneva Convention, left thousands of scientists, military contractors, and Pentagon caliphs as stranded assets yearning for the program's revival. The treaty also included a yawning loophole. It allowed production of anthrax and other biological warfare agents for vaccine production. The Pentagon and CIA spooks continued to cultivate bioweapon seed stock. Between 1983 and 1988, Searle Pharmaceuticals CEO Donald Rumsfeld, acting as Ronald Reagan's envoy in Iraq, arranged for the top-secret shipment of tons of chemical and biological armaments, including anthrax and bubonic plague, to Iraqi President Saddam Hussein, hoping to reverse his looming defeat by Iran's million-man army. Ayatollah Khomeini's victorious Iranian forces were then routing Saddam in their war over the Persian Gulf. The Bush administration feared the impact on global oil supplies if Iran prevailed in that conflict. The Birth of the Biosecurity Agenda Following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1988 to 1991, the military-industrial complex began rummaging about for a more reliable enemy to permanently justify its hefty share of the GDP. While most Americans eagerly awaited the Ballyhooed Peace Dividend, Pentagon mandarins and their emporium of contractors may have considered with dismay that someone else would be spending money that was rightfully theirs. The Peace Dividend never materialized. Beginning with the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993 and culminating in 9-11, Islamic terrorism replaced the Soviets as the essential adversary in U.S. foreign policy. It may have provided solace to the military and its contractors that terrorism was a more reliable long-term foe than the Soviets. Since terrorism is a tactic, not a nation, an imprecisely defined terrorism had the allure of an enemy that could never be vanquished. We can imagine the defense contractor's relief when Vice President Dick Cheney declared the Long War, one he promised would last for generations, with battlegrounds scattered in more than 50 nations. 
military contractors held tight to their gravy train with the mission of building an expensive new arsenal of anti-terror technologies. But terrorism had its own shortfall, namely the challenge of sustaining public fear sufficient to justify spending substantial portions of GDP to meet a threat that killed fewer Americans annually than lightning strikes. By 1999, some far-sighted Pentagon planners were already looking ahead to the more exuberant and sustainable prosperity that would come with a war on germs. Most historians date the nativity of the modern biosecurity agenda to the October 2001 anthrax attacks. But, years earlier, military and medical-industrial complex planners were already conceptualizing biosecurity as a potent strategy for leveraging potential pandemics or bioterrorism into vast funding increases and as a device for metamorphosing America, the world's exemplary democracy, into a national security state with global dominance. Robert Cadlick, Let the Games Begin Bioweapons expert Robert P. Cadlick is an American physician and retired colonel in the United States Air Force who served as Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services for Preparedness and Response from August 2017 until January 2021 and who managed the COVID-19 crisis during the Trump administration. Second only to his longtime crony and comrade-in-arms Anthony Fauci, Robert Cadlick played an historic leadership role in fomenting the contagious logic that infectious disease posed a national security threat requiring a militarized response. Since the 1993 World Trade Center terror attack, Cadlick had been evangelizing about an imminent anthrax attack that would doom the American way of life. In the mid-1990s, Cadlick served as part of an elite Air Force Operations Unit of UN weapons inspectors, fruitlessly hunting the Iraqi desert for Saddam Hussein's suspected stores of anthrax and botulism following the First Persian Gulf War. At 2.47 in the early morning of February 1st, 2020, four hours after his loyal grantee, virologist Christian Anderson, informed Dr. Fauci that he and other leading biologists believed that the genetic sequence responsible for the furin cleave on the virus's spike protein, the peculiar structure that allows the organism to bind tightly to and infect cells with the ACE2 receptor, was highly unlikely to be the product of natural selection, Dr. Anthony Fauci fired a carefully worded email to Cadlick. Dr. Fauci's other emails from that evening suggest that he was intensely worried that the Chinese experiments that may have created this striation in the novel coronavirus would bear his fingerprints. If Dr. Fauci's gain-of-function research had indeed minted COVID-19, then Cadlick would also be implicated. Cadlick served on the small so-called P3CO committee charged with approving NIH's gain-of-function experiments, and it is clear from Dr. Fauci's email that the subject was also on Cadlick's mind. Dr. Fauci attached an article to his email to Cadlick. 
It was Bat Lady Shi Zhengli's deceitful effort to downplay the laboratory leak hypothesis. Bob, this just came out today, Dr. Fauci told his gain-of-function confederate, gives a balanced view. Subsequent events proved that the author of that article was deliberately lying to conceal the Wuhan lab's manipulation of coronavirus pathogens that were nearly identical to the microbe that caused COVID-19. Both Cadlick and Fauci had been involved, for over a decade, in promoting and funding these dangerous experiments through NIAID and the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, BARDA, the biosecurity funding agency that Cadlick had helped create, including funneling millions of dollars in U.S. funding to Xi, the hapless writer of the exculpatory article. Dr. Fauci's email shows these two technocrats and others patching together evidence for the dubious official story that they would tell the world. Over the next few weeks, Dr. Fauci would pull the reliable old levers that he had manipulated for decades to transform convenient canards into official orthodoxies. The contrived cosmologies he thereby constructed would hold for a full year before they finally began to unravel. Cadlick is a Dr. Strangelove knockoff with deep ties to spy agencies, Big Pharma, the Pentagon, and military contractors who profiteer from the spread of bioweapons alarmism. Intelligence agency historian and journalist Whitney Webb describes Cadlick as a man enmeshed in the world of intelligence, military intelligence, and corporate corruption, dutifully fulfilling the vision of his friends in high places and behind closed doors. In 1998, Cadlick created an internal strategy paper for the Pentagon, promoting the development of pandemic pathogens as a stealth weapon that the Pentagon could deploy against its enemies without leaving fingerprints. Biological weapons under the cover of an endemic or natural disease occurrence provides an attacker the potential for plausible denial. Biological warfare's potential to create significant economic losses and consequent political instability, coupled with plausible deniability, exceeds the possibilities of any other human weapon, he wrote. Cadlick, in 1999, organized his paranoia into several illustrative scenarios to demonstrate the United States' vulnerability to biological attack. In one of Cadlick's doomsday fantasies dubbed Corn Terrorism, China clandestinely sprays corn seed blight over the Midwest from commercial airliners. Cadlick warns China gains significant corn market share and tens of billions of dollars of additional profits from their crop, while leaving the U.S. corn belt in ruin. Another Cadlick scenario titled Lousy Wine envisions disgruntled European winemakers covertly releasing grape lice concealed in cans of pâté to target California wine producers. In an April 2001 study for the National Defense University National War College, Cadlick urgently recommended the creation of a strategic national stockpile to warehouse countermeasures including vaccines and antibiotics 
and recommended regulatory changes to provide for mandatory vaccinations and coercive quarantines in the event of a pandemic. Those ideas helped win him an appointment as Special Assistant for Biodefense Planning to President George W. Bush after the post-September 11th anthrax attacks later that same year. From this sinecure, Cadillac's fervent lobbying persuaded Congress to establish a strategic national stockpile whose contents are currently worth $7 billion. Cadillac would come to control purchases for that stockpile and, following the lead of his comrades Bill Gates and Tony Fauci, he would use that power to enrich his vaccine industry friends and sideline public health. As journalist Alexis Baden-Mayer observed, Cadillac created the biodefense industrial complex as we know it, and he rules it like a czar. The Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci-funded biosecurity. Let the war games begin. In 1999, Dr. Cadlick organized a simulation of a smallpox terrorist attack on U.S. soil for a joint exercise by the newly formed Johns Hopkins Center for Civilian Biodefense Strategies and the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The founder of the center was D.A. Henderson, famed for leading the program that eradicated smallpox in 1977. The senior fellow and co-founder of the Johns Hopkins Center was a CIA spook and pharmaceutical industry lobbyist named Tara O'Toole. She took over as chief when Henderson left. The third center director was Tom Inglesby, who remains in that role. In 1999, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation committed $20 million to Johns Hopkins to establish the Bill and Melinda Gates Institute for Population and Reproductive Health. For the next two decades, Gates would direct a vast stream of funding to the enterprise of elevating biosecurity as the national priority. Some of his most visible investments funded a series of simulations presided over by Inglesby at his Johns Hopkins Center. Those simulations would make Inglesby the congenial face of biosecurity paranoia, feed the burgeoning biodefense industry, and help lay the foundation for the modern security state. The deal pipeline from NIH and NIAID to Johns Hopkins, an astonishing $13 billion since 2001, dwarfs Gates' contributions to the school. But shoddy or perhaps Deliberately obscure reporting makes it nearly impossible to determine how many of these dollars flowed to Inglesby and his center. Cadlick's simulations, and over a dozen that would succeed it over the next 20-plus years, many under Bill Gates's direction, shared common features. None of them emphasized protecting public health by showing Americans how to bolster their immune systems, to eat well, to lose weight, to exercise, to maintain vitamin D levels, and to avoid chemical exposure. None of these focused on devising the vital communications infrastructures to link frontline doctors during a pandemic or to facilitate the development and refinement of optimal treatment protocols. None of these dealt seriously with the need to identify off-the-shelf, 
now known as repurposed therapeutic drugs, to mitigate fatalities and to shorten a pandemic's duration. None of them considered ways to isolate the sick and protect the vulnerable, or how to shield people in nursing homes and other institutions from infection. None of them questioned the efficacy of masks, lockdowns, and social distancing in reducing casualties. None of them engaged in soul-searching about how to preserve constitutional rights during a global pandemic. Instead, the simulations wargamed how to use police powers to detain and quarantine citizens, how to impose martial law, how to control messaging by deploying propaganda, how to employ censorship to silence dissent, and how to mandate masks, lockdowns, and coercive vaccinations and conduct track-and-trace surveillance among potentially reluctant populations. Coercion should be the last strategy to consider in a pandemic, remarked physician and biological warfare expert Merrill Nass, M.D. If you have a remedy that works, people will flock to get it. It's troubling that the first and only option was creating a police state. The Still Unsolved Mystery of the Post-9-11 Anthrax Attacks Contemporaneously with Johns Hopkins' smallpox simulation, the Pentagon launched a top-secret project at a former nuclear weapons site in the Nevada desert to test the feasibility of building a small anthrax production facility using off-the-shelf equipment easily available in hardware stores and biological supply catalogs. Codenamed Project Bacchus, a small cohort of faux terrorists, military weapons experts, succeeded in producing a few pounds of anthrax. Two years after the Pentagon's Nevada anthrax project, someone associated with the United States Army mounted a far-reaching campaign of sending anthrax to members of Congress and key media figures, officially launching the biosecurity era. In the light of subsequent events, we cannot exclude the possibility that someone in our government carried out a false flag attack against Americans as a provocation for some larger agenda. This is not an outlandish conspiracy theory. During my uncle's presidential administration, the Joint Chiefs of Staff submitted a plan termed Operation North Woods, proposing false flag attacks including mass murders of random American citizens, to justify an invasion of Cuba. My uncle reacted with horror to Joint Chief Chairman Lyman Lemnitzer's Northwoods briefing pitch and abruptly walked out of the presentation. And they call us the human race, he remarked to his Secretary of State, Dean Rusk. U.S. intelligence agencies and military-industrial complex insiders initially, and ultimately wrongly, blamed the 2001 anthrax letter attacks on Saddam Hussein or al-Qaeda, and later used similarly incorrect pretexts to launch a war against Iraq. The mailing of anthrax introduced Americans to a new enemy, more frightening than garden-variety terrorism. While terrorists could destroy key buildings and airliners, the biosecurity narrative warns that pathogens could enter any American home and invisibly slay its occupants. Germs, therefore, 
easily outgunned Al-Qaeda as a reliable wellspring of terror. This was the lesson Cadillac had been broadcasting for five years. The delivery of anthrax through the mail brought home his jeremiads. By 2020, biosecurity would altogether eclipse Islamic terrorism as the spear tip of U.S. military and foreign policy. The topic of infectious diseases suddenly became the most effective way to open government pockets. Meet the El Hibri family. In 1998, Lebanese-born financier Ibrahim El Hibri and his son Fuad, with former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Admiral William Crow Jr., established a corporation called Bioport and paid the state of Michigan $25 million for its aging vaccine manufacturing campus. The purpose the El Hibris intended to use the factory for was to manufacture anthrax vaccine for sale to the U.S. military. El Hibri Sr. was a longtime associate of both Robert Cadlick and Admiral Crow, who chaired the Joint Chiefs under Presidents Reagan and George H.W. Bush. The El Hibris had previous success in the anthrax vaccine business, having made a small fortune by purchasing anthrax vaccines made by the U.K. government and reselling them at 100 times the purchase price to the Saudi Arabian government. Less than a month after taking over the Michigan-based business, Bioport signed an exclusive $29 million contract with the Pentagon to manufacture, test, bottle, and store the anthrax vaccine for American troops stationed abroad. The Secretary of the Army indemnified the factory the day before signing the contract on September 3rd, 1998. The El Hibris never safety-tested their concoction. They didn't have to. They had no liability for injuries. Ten months before the El Hibris bought the plant, an FDA audit uncovered contamination problems, suspect record-keeping, and assorted security breaches at their laboratory, as well as nine million stored doses that were adulterated. Almost as soon as Bioport was formed, it began receiving large sums from the U.S. Army to rehabilitate the anthrax plant, but it was still unable to pass an FDA audit. In 1999, they bulldozed the factory and rebuilt it at taxpayer expense. The state of Michigan sweetened the deal, but the FDA would not give its stamp of approval to the new manufacturing facility. Bioport with a hefty lobbying team and designer furniture in its executive offices, kept crying poor and coming back to the U.S. government for additional handouts before finally falling into a death spiral around the bankruptcy drain in mid-2001. The October 2001 anthrax incidents proved the El Hibri's salvation. The Pentagon leveraged the strange attacks turning them into the long-awaited provocation, justifying the crusade to expand the battlefront in bioweapons research. The 1972 Biological Weapons Convention meant neither the brass nor the spooks could legally research or produce bioweapons. But the convention left open the loophole that signatories could develop dual-use vaccine and weapon technologies so long as the projects had a defensive rationale. 
after the anthrax attacks, vaccines suddenly became a euphemism for bioweapons and a ticket back to deep water for a beached biowarfare industry. Military planners at the Pentagon, BARDA, DARPA, and the CIA through USAID began pouring money into gain-of-function experiments. Dual-use research was suddenly in vogue. Dark Winter 2001 During June 22nd and 23rd, 2001, less than three months before the 9-11 attacks, the Pentagon launched a war game codenamed Operation Dark Winter at Andrews Air Force Base that emphasized the military's earnest commitment to bioweapon vaccines. Robert Cadlick, the lead organizer of this pandemic simulation, also coined its codename. The tabletop scenario simulated a smallpox attack on U.S. locations beginning in Oklahoma City the site of a real domestic terror attack in 1995. Dark winter participants explored strategies for imposing coercive quarantines, censorship, mandatory masking, lockdowns, and vaccination, and expanded police powers as the only rational responses to the pandemic. The failure in the dark winter case to quickly implement such countermeasures allowed the galloping spread of the Pentagon's imaginary smallpox epidemic to overwhelm America's response capabilities, precipitating massive civilian casualties, widespread panic, societal breakdown, and mob violence. The Pentagon's summary of the exercise concluded that scarcity of vaccines to curtail the contagion spread proved the most severe limitation on management options. The dark winter exercise eerily predicted many aspects of what would follow just months later with the anthrax letter attacks. Such uncanny miracles of foreshadowing became a recurring feature of each subsequent germ game. The Spooks and the Simulations By playing the role of U.S. President, the Senate Defense Committee's longtime chairman, Senator Sam Nunn, a dyed-in-the-wool warhawk, brought prestige, urgency, and a militaristic gestalt to Cadillac's dark winter exercise. Most of the other key participants shared Cadillac's intelligence agency pedigrees. CIA involvement was a consistent feature of this and all the subsequent simulations. Other participants included Robert Cadlick's fellow intelligence officer and war college professor, Colonel Randall Larson, USAF, another career bioweapons expert who helped choreograph the exercise and appeared in its fictional scripted news clips. CIA's former director, James Woolsey, was a participant and organizer, as was a pharmaceutical industry lobbyist and biological weapons expert. Tara O'Toole, a director of the CIA hedge fund InQtel, the CIA's former Deputy Director for Science and Technology, Ruth David, Hopkins bioterrorism expert Tom Inglesby, and New York Times journalist Judith Miller also participated. James Woolsey's presence, and that of Colonel Larson, Ruth David, and Tara O'Toole, signaled the intelligence community's ubiquitous but shadowy presence in biosecurity and all things vaccine. 
I sat on a board with Woolsey for several years and am familiar with his deep anxieties about germ warfare. Woolsey's germophobia rivals Cadillac's. Woolsey calls a biological weapons attack the single most dangerous threat to U.S. national security in the foreseeable future. O'Toole is a biodefense enthusiast, co-founder of the Johns Hopkins Center for Civilian Biodefense Studies and executive vice president at the CIA's investment arm, NQTEL. That shady firm is the vector by which U.S. intelligence services infiltrate startup firms on the cutting edge of technological innovation. O'Toole, like her longtime Confederate Cadillac, juggles deep and disturbing relationships with the same retinue of rapacious pharmaceutical industry and military contractors that Cadillac also cultivated. In 2009, when President Obama nominated O'Toole for Undersecretary for Science and Technology at the Department of Homeland Security, Senator John McCain criticized her for concealing her role as strategic director of a pharmaceutical industry lobbying outfit, Alliance Biosciences. Alliance is an unincorporated corporate front group created by Ibrahim El-Hibri and his partner, former Joint Chiefs Chair Admiral William Crow, and funded by other bioweapons firms. Alliance has no tax filing and operates out of a K Street influence shop. The congressional record shows that the Alliance is a so-called stealth lobbying firm that spent $500,000 over 2005 to 2009 pitching Congress and the Homeland Security Department for greater biodefense expenditures, and particularly for anthrax vaccines. Alliance's other funders include Pfizer, the International Pharmaceutical Aerosol Consortium, and SIG Technologies, a biodefense military contractor. O'Toole's nomination to Undersecretary at the Department of Homeland Security also prompted objections from more mainstream bioweapons experts, including the preeminent Rutgers microbiologist Richard Ebright. She was the single most extreme person, either in or out of government, advocating for a massive biodefense expansion and relaxation of provisions for safety and security. Ebright added, she makes Dr. Strangelove look sane. O'Toole supported every flawed decision and counterproductive policy on biodefense, biosafety, and biosecurity during the Bush administration. O'Toole is as out of touch with reality and paranoiac. It would be hard to think of a person less well-suited for the position. During those same 2009 confirmation hearings, Democratic Senator Carl Levin of Michigan added to the voices of skepticism. Dr. O'Toole fell short of the strict adherence to scientific principles when she was the director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Civilian Biodefense Strategies, he said. Noting that Dr. O'Toole was one of the principal designers and authors of the June 2001 Dark Winter exercise that simulated a covert attack on the United States by bioterrorists, Levin faulted O'Toole for using the exercise to promote her biosecurity agenda and with hyperbolic pandemic fantasies. But many top scientists have said that the Dark Winter exercise was based on faulty and exaggerated assumptions about the transmission rate 
of smallpox. Dr. James Koopman of the Department of Epidemiology at the University of Michigan made the ungenerous assessment that O'Toole's enthusiasm for germ warfare had clouded her scientific judgment. Koopman, an expert at modeling the transmission rates of infectious diseases who participated in the smallpox eradication program, complained that Dr. O'Toole has not sought balanced scientific input in her thinking, that she shows a lack of analytic orientation to scientific issues, and that she has generated hype about bioterrorism that she will feel obligated to defend rather than pursue a balanced approach. Dr. Michael Lane, the former director of the Centers for Disease Control Smallpox Eradication Program, likewise condemned O'Toole for padding her assumptions about smallpox transmission rates in dark winter, which he characterized as improbable and even absurd. Ironically, even Dr. Fauci, who by then was already the king of embellishing and fabricating pandemics, voiced his disapproval of O'Toole and Cadillac's extreme dark winter exaggerations, which Dr. Fauci declared much, much worse than would have been the case in real life. The transmission rate of smallpox was not the only area where Dr. O'Toole and Cadillac ignored facts. On February 19, 2002, O'Toole wrote that Many experts believe that the smallpox virus is not confined to these two official repositories, one in the United States and one in Russia, and may be in the possession of states or subnational groups pursuing active biological weapons programs. O'Toole cited a June 13, 1999 New York Times article as the source for her alarming assertion that subnational groups controlled smallpox stocks but that article included no reference to any non-state group actors possessing any biological weapons. Another key dark winter planner and participant was Ruth David, a former deputy director at the CIA. In 1998, David became president of ANSWER, a nonprofit corporation with deep ties to the CIA. ANSWER played a key role in pushing the government toward homeland security post-9-11 and became a primary promoter of biometric and facial recognition software for U.S. law enforcement agencies. Among other functions, ANSWER funds a mysterious defense contractor from South Carolina called Advanced Technology International. ATI somehow became the vector through which the government arranged at least $6 billion of secretive Operation Warp Speed vaccine contracts with Pfizer, Bill Gates's Novavax vaccine, Johnson & Johnson, and Sanofi. Those contracts, comprising the majority of Operation Warp Speed's $10 billion budget, suggest a deep CIA involvement with the COVID-19 vaccine enterprise's cozy deals with Big Pharma. As Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response with HHS, Robert Cadlick personally signed off on those sweetheart deals. The terms allow Operation Warp Speed to completely bypass the regulatory oversight and transparency of traditional federal contracting mechanisms, as NPR put it. In a January 2021 expose, the New York Times dug into Cadlick's secretive vaccine contracts, observing that available documents 
suggest that drug companies demanded and received flexible delivery schedules, as well as patent protection and immunity from liability if anything goes wrong. In some instances, countries are prohibited from donating or reselling doses, a ban that could hamper efforts to get vaccines to poor countries. Dark Winter Aftermath Despite all its hiccups, Dark Winter was an extraordinary success. It foreshadowed the real bioweapons incidents occurring less than three months later, inflamed public germophobia, and fortified the official narrative after the first September 18th anthrax attack letters, which pointed fingers at Saddam Hussein and or al-Qaeda as the probable culprits. Several Dark Winter participants displayed extraordinary prescience in the weeks leading up to the anthrax attacks, along with a relentless determination to pin the caper on Saddam. The anthrax attacks' first casualty, Robert Stevens, was hospitalized and diagnosed with anthrax on October 2nd. Highly publicized and laudatory Senate hearings on the dark winter simulation that began on October 1st, 2001, three days before the anthrax attacks became public knowledge, functioned to imbue U.S. government officials, the national press, and the public with Dark Winter's paranoid assumptions and to assign the blame to Saddam. Another Dark Winter planner, Jerome Hauer, along with spymaster James Woolsey and New York Times reporter Judith Miller, spent the three weeks between 9-11 and October 4th banging the gong about imminent anthrax attacks, carpet-bombing the television talk shows, kibitzing on the nightly news, and gabbing up the Sunday morning TV gas bags. Judith Miller received special assistance in this task from her employer, The New York Times, which published her numerous alarmist reports and warnings about coming biological attacks on American soil. Incredibly, the attack arrived exactly as Miller, Hauer, and Woolsey predicted, and with exquisite timing, smack in the middle of the U.S. Senate hearings over America's vulnerability to an anthrax attack. Hauer, a bioterrorism expert and pharmaceutical industry operative, is currently an executive with Teneo, a consulting firm that counsels corporations on security matters and is one of the leading advocates of mandatory vaccines for employees as a condition for employment. Members of the think tank The Project for a New American Century, PNAC, also played a key role in sounding the alarm that a biological weapons attack was certain to follow on the heels of 9-11 and then simultaneously amplified the panic and blamed Iraq following the anthrax letter attacks. PNAC's core doctrine was that, as the Cold War victor, America and U.S.-based multinationals, particularly petroleum and pharmaceutical companies, had earned the right to rule the world for a century or so. PNAC members populated virtually all of the key foreign policy posts in the Bush White House. The warmongering cabal called themselves the Vulcans in honor of their belligerent brand of U.S. imperialism. Their members included Dick Cheney, Scooter Libby, Donald Rumsfeld, Douglas Fife, Elliot Abrams, John Bolton, and Rumsfeld's advisors Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz. 
Critics called them the Chicken Hawks because, ironically, each one of them had draft-dodged the Vietnam War. Osama bin Laden, the author of the World Trade Center attacks, supposedly directed that operation from an Afghan cave. But Donald Rumsfeld complained there aren't any good targets in Afghanistan. The PNAC Chicken Hawks were determined to use 9-11 as a pretext for a war against Iraq, beneath which God had mischievously stockpiled so much of America's oil. Anthrax provided that provocation. Control of global oil resources was, for PNAC, a key stepping stone for the coming century of American imperialism, and a bioweapon attack against America became the ideal provocation for preemptive invasion. It's noteworthy that Judith Miller not only covered the dark winter exercise for the New York Times, she was also an active planner and participant in the simulation, playing the part of a reporter. Miller was an OG germaphobe and veteran biosecurity booster. On September 4, 2001, exactly one week before the 9-11 attacks, Miller, excerpting from a paranoid book, Germs, she had written with Times reporters William Broad and Steve Engelberg, reported approvingly in the New York Times that the Pentagon had green-lighted a project to make a potentially more potent form of anthrax bacteria. Miller did not explain why this response seemed rational or even sane. Miller's articles repeating Pentagon and CIA claims about Saddam's bioweapons cash and his probable involvement with the anthrax attacks helped fuel the U.S. invasion of Iraq. According to New York Magazine, during the winter of 2001 and throughout 2002, Miller produced a series of stunning stories about Saddam Hussein's ambition and capacity to produce weapons of mass destruction, almost all of which have turned out to be stunningly inaccurate. Miller's jingoistic reporting, New York Magazine dubbed her Chicken Little, played such a decisive role in validating the White House warmonger's Iraq invasion agenda that the New York Times afterward made an unprecedented apology for its role in what then was arguably the worst foreign policy decision in United States history. Miller was so keen to facilitate an Iraq invasion that she illegally leaked the identity of CIA agent Valerie Plame to punish Plame's husband, State Department diplomat Joseph Wilson, who had publicly challenged White House and CIA narratives about Iraq obtaining yellowcake uranium from Niger. The CIA at that time was aggressively pushing for war. George W. Bush later said that his worst mistake during his White House years was swallowing the CIA's guarantees. The biggest regret of all the presidency has to have been the intelligence failure in Iraq. A lot of people put their reputations on the line and said the weapons of mass destruction is a reason to remove Saddam Hussein. In 2003, during the run-up to the war, CIA Director George Tenet assured President Bush that Saddam had a secret arsenal of weapons of mass destruction, WMDs. Don't worry, it's a slam dunk. Miller served three months in jail for contempt before she agreed to disclose the identity of her confederate, Louis Scooter Libby, VP Cheney's chief of staff. 
Libby, who told Miller that Plame was a clandestine CIA agent and directed her to publish the revelation, subsequently went to prison for the crime. It will be many years before the CIA releases documents explaining the agency's true relationships, if any, with Miller and Libby. Libby, a PNAC founder and key visionary and promoter of America's 100-year Reich, was an early champion of the modern biosecurity agenda, with multiple personal connections with the intelligence community at Yale, Rand, Northrop Grumman, and the Pentagon. The State Department's Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs, his employer in the early 1980s, had and still has deep CIA ties. His obsession with bioterrorism led Libby to write a novel about a smallpox pandemic and earned him the White House nickname Germ Boy. Following his pardon and subsequent prison release by President Donald Trump, Libby joined Robert Cadlick's Blue Ribbon Panel for Biodefense, BRPB, which promotes biosecurity as the fulcrum of U.S. foreign policy, the 21st century as the age of U.S. empire, and mass vaccination as a foreign policy tool. Libby's fellow BRPB director, William Karish, is the executive vice president of Peter Daszak's EcoHealth Alliance, the organization through which Dr. Fauci, Cadlick, and the Pentagon, through DARPA, were laundering gain-of-function payments to Chinese scientists in Wuhan. Libby also serves as senior vice president of the Hudson Institute, a think tank with deep connections to the pharmaceutical industry, Monsanto, and the CIA. He guides the Institute's program on national security and defense issues. In 2021, former CIA Director Mike Pompeo joined the Hudson Institute. The pervasive CIA involvement in the global vaccine putsch should give us pause. There is nothing in the CIA's history, in its charter, in its composition, or in its institutional culture that betrays an interest in promoting either public health or democracy. The CIA's historical preoccupations have been power and control. The CIA has been involved in at least 72 attempted and successful coup d'etat between 1947 and 1989, involving about a third of the world's governments. Many of these were functioning democracies. The CIA does not do public health. It does not do democracy. The CIA does coup d'etat. Smallpox. Biosecurity Blossoms Dark Winter was part of a persistent campaign by the intelligence agencies and the bioweapons lobby to keep smallpox fears alive in the public consciousness. Even before the disease was eradicated in 1977, public health regulators had discontinued smallpox vaccinations in the United States. Public health advocates urged the federal bureaucracies and the military to destroy their smallpox stockpile to prevent the disease from escaping and possibly decimating humanity. Ignoring these warnings, the George W. Bush administration purchased even more. During the run-up to the Iraq War, President Bush aimed to inoculate the U.S. population with smallpox vaccines. Skeptics charged that the reckless scheme was PNAC's transparent gimmick 
for hyping fear of Saddam Hussein's mythological bioweapons program. Dr. Merrill Nass, writing on the history of smallpox vaccine, later reported the smallpox vaccine was known to be highly reactogenic. When the vaccine was given to healthcare workers and first responders in 2003, episodes of heart failure, heart attacks, myocarditis, and death quickly mounted. Doctors and nurses learned that they could not sue for damages if injured, and at first there was no federal compensation either. They began refusing to be vaccinated. The Clinton administration continued to stockpile millions of smallpox vaccines, and Congress allotted money for a compensation program, but the maximum award was only $250,000 for a permanent disability or death. After distributing 40 million inoculations, the wave of alarming injuries caused the government to abandon the project's civilian arm. The military continued vaccinating soldiers with the untested, unapproved, deadly vaccine, with catastrophic results. The vaccine caused symptomatic myocarditis in one in every 216 soldiers and subclinical myocarditis in one in 35 soldiers, according to a 2015 U.S. Army study. Government officials have since recognized vaccines as a probable culprit in the era's epidemic of Gulf War syndrome, which affected vaccinated soldiers both deployed and those vaccinated in preparation for deployment, but never deployed. The court observed that absent an informed consent or presidential waiver, the United States cannot demand that members of the armed forces also serve as guinea pigs for experimental drugs. October 4th Anthrax Attack Less than four months after the dark winter simulation, and three weeks after 9-11, a mysterious spate of letters containing fine white anthrax spores arrived by mail at several news media outlets and the Capitol Hill offices of two senators, Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy. Those two senators had been the most vocal in condemning the post-9-11 infringements on civil liberties pushed by the PNAC crowd, administration and press accusations pegging Saddam Hussein as the probable culprit in the anthrax attacks which killed five Americans, fueled Congress's hasty passage of the Patriot Act. As Michael Moore proved, not a single elected member had read the bill and its jingoistic declaration of war on Iraq. By abolishing traditional privacy protection, the Patriot Act created an entire terror industry, according to a 2021 report by Action Center on Race and Economy. The biggest beneficiaries have been Silicon Valley tech companies, particularly Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, who have partnered with federal intelligence agencies to mine data and profit from the war on terror by at least $44 billion since 2001. The Patriot Act passage, the report says, opened the door for big tech to become, first and foremost, the brokers of our personal data, selling it to secret agencies and private companies at home and abroad, unleashing the era of the digital economy. Second only to Vice President Dick Cheney, the staunchest war hawk among George W. Bush's Beltway coterie 
was his Secretary of Defense, former Searle Pharmaceutical CEO and PNAC Chieftain Donald Rumsfeld, the very man who 14 years earlier had given Saddam his anthrax arsenal. While no one has ever proven the origin of the anthrax in those letters, the FBI concluded that the powder had come from a U.S. military lab. Robert Cadlick was first among the large coterie of pharmaceutical companies and military contractors to benefit from the anthrax scare. Immediately after the anthrax letters arrived, Cadlick became a special advisor on biological warfare to then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and his PNAC deputy, Paul Wolfowitz. Three suspects, all linked to the U.S. military. The PNAC cabal was determined to blame the anthrax attack on Saddam Hussein, and Rumsfeld's deputy, Paul Wolfowitz, tasked Cadlick with confirming the presence of bentonite in the anthrax used in the attacks. Experts had advised Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz that bentonite was a fingerprint unique to Iraqi anthrax stocks. Its presence would therefore put the blame on Saddam. Cadlick did not succeed in finding bentonite in any of the anthrax samples that the FBI tested, but repeated media reports claiming otherwise allowed warmongers to drum up jingoistic hysteria against Saddam. By late October 2001, one nationwide poll found that 74% of respondents wanted the United States to take military action against Baghdad, despite a complete lack of evidence connecting Iraq to either 9-11 or the anthrax attacks. Instead of pointing the finger at Saddam, the FBI lab found that the anthrax spores originated from one of three U.S. Army labs, Fort Detrick, a lab at the University of Scranton, or Battelle's West Jefferson facility, owned by an El Hibri business partner. The FBI closed its investigation after its leading suspect, a vaccinologist, Dr. Bruce Ivins, who ran the U.S. Army lab at Fort Detrick, allegedly took his own life. A multitude of critics of the shoddy and haphazard FBI investigation complained that Ivins was the victim of a ham-handed FBI frame. According to the FBI's former lead investigator, Richard Lambert, the FBI team hid a mountain of evidence that would have exonerated Ivins. In 2008, following Ivan's untimely suicide, Department of Justice civil attorneys in Florida, defending a claim by the widow of anthrax victim Robert Stevens, publicly challenged the FBI's assertions that Ivan's had been the culprit and instead pointedly suggested that a private laboratory in Ohio managed by Battelle and linked to the El Hibris could have been involved in the attacks. DOG headquarters quickly had its Florida attorneys rewrite their brief, omitting this claim. An Italian publication, Il Manifesto, reported in its October 2001 issue that the FBI had placed the El Hibris on its suspects list for sending the anthrax spores through the U.S. mail. Qui bono. Since 1995, Cadlick had been frothing about bioterrorism to war college students and urging the creation of a Strategic National Stockpile, SNS, 
to warehouse vaccines and other countermeasures. In 2004, with Cadillac now working for Secretary Rumsfeld at the Bush White House, Congress passed the Public Health Security and Bioterrorism Preparedness Act, which Cadillac drafted, directing the Secretary of HHS to maintain a strategic national stockpile managed jointly by DHS and HHS. The same week, Congress passed the Project BioShield Act, which Cadillac also helped draft, launching the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, BARDA, a government-operated investment bank that would germinate new technologies for Cadillac's stockpile. With Cadillac's guidance, BARDA would become a federal ATM machine for big pharma, biodefense contractors, and gain-of-function researchers. Along with Dr. Fauci's NIAID and the Pentagon's DARPA, BARDA would be the other big league funder for experiments to create pandemic superbugs in Wuhan and elsewhere. Codlick's statute authorized the purchase of $5 billion of materiel, including vaccines, for the stockpile, creating a gold mine, as we shall see, for Cadillac's friends, the El Hibris. Another conspicuous beneficiary of the stockpile was then-Secretary of State Donald Rumsfeld and Cadillac's boss, who made a killing during the 2004 fake bird flu pandemic, which Tony Fauci ginned up with his confederate, an ambitious young British physician and welcome trust researcher, Jeremy Ferrer. Sixteen years later, as director of Welcome Trust, Ferrer would play a key role in the 2020 Wuhan cover-up. The Pentagon in 2004 and 2005, in response to Ferrer's concocted contagion, stockpiled 80 million doses of Gilead's flu remedy, Tamiflu. Secretary Rumsfeld had served on the board of Gilead from 1988 to 2001 and was its chairman from 1997 until he joined the Bush administration as defense secretary. He retained stock in the pharmaceutical company, which netted him a $5 million profit from the Tamiflu run-up. George Schultz, another PNAC warhawk, also hit the jackpot, cashing in $7 million of Gilead stock during the Tamiflu run-up. The biggest winners, however, were the El Hibris. The anthrax attacks brought them exoneration, salvation, and extravagant windfalls. Bioport's Rebirth and Reinvention as Emergent Biosolutions Anthrax arrived just in time for the El Hibris. Bioport was by then on the ropes. The El Hibri's anthrax vaccine facility was facing bankruptcy and the loss of its operating license. Bioport's Pentagon contract expired in August 2001 with a host of outstanding accounting mysteries impeding its renewal. The Pentagon had given Bioport millions to renovate its factory, but much of that money instead financed senior management bonuses and an opulent makeover for the El Hibri's executive offices. Millions more simply disappeared, according to journalist Whitney Webb. In 2000, not long after receiving its first Pentagon bailout, Bioport contracted none other than Battelle Memorial Institute to cultivate its anthrax seed stock. 
Cadlick's boss, Donald Rumsfeld, told aides that his biosecurity priority after the incidents of anthrax sent through the mail was rescuing Bioport. We're going to try to save it and try to fashion some sort of an arrangement whereby we give one more crack at getting the job done with that outfit. It's the only outfit in this country that has anything underway, and it's not very well underway, as you point out. Gold Rush In the summer of 2001, two months before the 9-11 World Trade Center attacks, the Department of Defense officially launched its drive to revive bioweapons research by sending a report to Congress, authored by Cadlick, pleading that the military system for developing vaccines to protect troops from anthrax, smallpox, and other exotic bioweapons is insufficient and will fail. Beginning with the 9-11 attack, the war on terror triggered a tectonic shift in global security priorities and elephantine ripples in defense spending patterns across the globe as open democracies began shifting to a security state footing. The revival of U.S. government interest in germ warfare opened new opportunities. The U.S. biodefense budget went from $137 million in 1997 to $14.5 billion for 2001 through 2004. Every agency with a colorable claim to a national security function paddled out frantically to barrel the money tsunami. Between 2001 and 2014, the United States spent around $80 billion on biodefense. Since germ weaponry was still illegal, vaccines became a critical euphemism for the revival of the multi-billion dollar bioweapons industry. Pentagon sources told Science Magazine that the military was applying for a sweeping overhaul of how the federal government develops vaccines to protect both the military and civilians. The Pentagon's assault on the vaccine space was both an opportunity and threat to Dr. Fauci and NIAID. U.S. Vice President Cheney and his PNAC Confederates found some convenient loopholes in the Geneva Convention through which they drove a 40-fold expansion in spending in biological weapons research. The Department of Defense had strict systems in place to ensure compliance with the Biological Weapons Convention. Those restrictions limited the Pentagon's freedom to undertake new research programs, particularly those referred to as the leading edge of biodefense. Cheney's response recalls Professor Richard E. Bright was to transfer this research from the Department of Defense to the National Institutes of Health, specifically to the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. By about 2004, this transfer was complete, and NIAID had been transformed into an arm of the defense sector. This made the NIAID director, Anthony Fauci, a major player in biodefense and germ warfare. Dr. Fauci sharpened his elbows and began maneuvering for a leading role for NIAID in milking the BARDA Homeland Security's cash cows. NIAID's biosecurity budget went from $0 in 2000 to $1.7 billion after the 2001 anthrax letters, much of that for bioweapons vaccines. 
Within five months following the anthrax postal incidents, Dr. Fauci had created two new sub-agencies to capture his share of the cheese, the NIAID Strategic Plan for Biodefense Research and the NIAID Biodefense Research Agenda for CDC Category A agents, which were those microorganisms designated by CDC to be potential pandemic pathogens. To populate the sub-agencies, he assembled a cadre of his loyal deputies and infectious disease principal investigators from the HIV bonanza. Their mission was to brand contagions as pressing terror threats, drum up pandemic panic, and lobby for government support for NIAID's new battery of biodefense vaccinations. Dr. Fauci and the El Hibris found common cause. Dr. Fauci could run interference for the El Hibris at FDA, overriding regulatory anxieties about Bioport's laboratory and product safety. The El Hibris, in turn, provided Dr. Fauci with a ready-made biodefense vaccine and a beachhead into the arcane maze of military contracting. Taking to the airwaves, Dr. Fauci made himself the face of biodefense. In a style now familiar to Americans, Fauci warned the public that postal workers who had handled the letters containing anthrax spores might still be harboring these in their lungs, even after taking two months of antibiotics, spreading plague with the morning mail. Taking the El Hibri's vaccine prophylactically, Dr. Fauci advised, might help. Dr. Fauci's signature fear-mongering was, of course, his trademark science-free speculation. Nestling the El Hibri's under his protective wing, Dr. Fauci swept aside FDA's safety concerns and publicly praised Bioport's experimental anthrax vaccine, Biothrax. He brushed aside the reservations of critics that the El Hibri's never established Biothrax's safety with some of his prototypical dissembling. Dr. Fauci said, The vaccine is designed to get the immune system to recognize the proteins and therefore the bacteria, and destroy both. In a December 2001 PBS interview, Fauci promised to deliver Biothrax, which had failed to pass a single FDA audit during the prior four years, at record pace. Fauci explained, In usual times, that is a process that takes years and years, but he committed that his project for delivering Biothrax is going to be markedly truncated because of the urgency of the situation. PBS observed that because of Bioport's production problems, the Pentagon had dramatically scaled back its plan to vaccinate U.S. forces, and there were insufficient anthrax vaccines in the Pentagon's stockpile to conduct the mass civilian inoculation program that had been Dr. Fauci's ultimate aim. But Bioport still possessed the only military contract and Fuad El-Hibri announced that he was primed to ramp up production. Practically every veteran federal bureaucrat was jockeying to ride the war on terror into the high-stakes winner's circle. The military's medical corps, maneuvering for its share of the overflowing stream of bioterrorism funding, had proposed that each American soldier should receive 75 new vaccines upon enlistment to cover every potential bioweapon. The brass asked President Bush to finance the development of this inoculation fusillade. 
not to be outgunned by the military doctors, Dr. Fauci announced in an October 2002 speech that within 10 years, his institute would produce a vaccine, a therapeutic drug, and an adjuvant drug for each of some two dozen bioweapons diseases, such as plague and hemorrhagic fever. According to an article in Scientific American, one scientist who requested anonymity said that Dr. Fauci told him that the Bush administration had demanded this goal and that he accepted it to prevent the Department of Defense or the Department of Homeland Security from getting the job. Dr. Fauci was openly competing with the military in an escalating campaign to soak the taxpayers using the risk posed by anthrax as a pretext. NIAID's biodefense budget alone increased sixfold between 2002 and 2003, from $270 million to $1.75 billion. When no further bioterror attacks occurred over the next 10 years, Dr. Fauci skillfully maintained his annual $1.7 billion biosecurity funding by deftly recalibrating his rhetoric away from bioterrorism hype. Instead, he invoked the new panic of natural but emerging infectious diseases. Dr. Fauci's pivot to conflate infectious disease with terrorism proved a milestone inflection point in the militarization of pandemic response and in overcoming the traditional revulsion among Western democracies codified in the Nuremberg Charter against coercive medical interventions. Despite the fact that they collectively killed only 800 people globally, the SARS coronavirus outbreaks between 2002 and 2004 were therefore a godsend to Dr. Fauci. The NIAID director ignored the most compelling caveat from those incidents, the fact that coronavirus lab escapes in China, Taiwan, and Singapore had precipitated several of the outbreaks. Fauci boasted in 2011, through the anthrax response, we built both a physical and an intellectual infrastructure that can be used to respond to a broad range of emerging health threats. By that time, the escalating intramural arms race to capture Pentagon, CIA, BARDA, DARPA, and HHS biosecurity funding was pulling the military, CIA, and NIAID deeper and deeper into the dicey alchemy of gain-of-function research that would ultimately culminate inside the BSL-4 Pandora's box in Wuhan. The CIA dips in its toe. The CIA had a long, sordid history of secretly promoting the U.S. bioweapons program. One of the agency's first projects was establishing a network of so-called rat lines that Army intelligence officers used to smuggle some 1,600 chemicals and bioweapons and WMD experts, many of them Nazi Party kingpins and notorious war criminals, out of the reach of the Allies' Nuremberg prosecutors following World War II. The directors of a notorious operation, codenamed Paperclip, provided these researchers with new identities and put them to work developing U.S. germ warfare capacity at Fort Detrick and elsewhere even after 1972. As late as 1997, the CIA defied the Bioweapons Treaty to launch a top-secret, 
and highly illegal effort to create a doomsday bacteria bomblet. The CIA officially made its open debut in the biosecurity racket in 2004, with its launch of Argus, a project that monitors biological, terrorist, and pandemic threats in 178 nations. CIA operative and pediatrician Jim Wilson set up the program at Georgetown University with funding from DHS and the Intelligence Innovation Center to create and implement global foreign biological event detection and tracking capability, capable of assessing millions of pieces of information about social behavior daily and to train government officials in pandemic preparedness. One of the key figures in this global surveillance effort was CIA officer Dr. Michael Callahan. Dr. Michael Callahan is one of the biggest names in bioweapons research. Dr. Callahan ran a biosecurity program for the former CIA surrogate USAID before serving as director of DARPA's bioweapons research program. At DARPA, he competed to outdo NIH in laundering money through Peter Daszak's EcoHealth Alliance to perform bioweapons research, including at the Wuhan lab. And as DARPA director, Callahan launched the PREDICT project in 2009, following Jeremy Ferrer's fake bird flu pandemic. PREDICT appeared to be a reincarnation of the CIA's Argus project under the cover of USAID. PREDICT is the largest single source of funding to DASIC, with a $3.4 million subgrant routed through the University of California, 2015 to 2020. PREDICT became the largest funder of gain-of-function studies and served as the principal funding vehicle through which the gain-of-function cartel evaded Barack Obama's 2014 presidential moratorium. When, during the height of the presidential gain-of-function moratorium, Ralph Barrick and the UTMB lab's Vineet Minacheri brazenly published their alarming 2015 study describing their reckless experiments to breed pandemic bat coronaviruses that could spread via respiratory droplets in humanized mice. They omitted mentioning, in their initial online version of the article, that one of the funding sources was USAID EPT PREDICT. Apparently hoping to cover its tracks, PREDICT had laundered its grant through Peter Daszak's EcoHealth Alliance. USAID's PREDICT program boasts that it has identified almost a thousand new viruses, including a new strain of Ebola, and trained some 5,000 people. In October 2019, not long before COVID-19 emerged, USAID abruptly ceased funding PREDICT, a decision bemoaned by Daszak in the New York Times as definitely a loss. Callahan had a chummy relationship with Daszak, with whom he co-authored several articles, including throughout the gain-of-function moratorium. In April 2015, for example, the names of Michael V. Callahan and Peter Daszak appeared as co-authors on a paper published in the Virology Journal entitled Diversity of Coronavirus in Bats from Eastern Thailand. Callahan was well aware that he and his Confederates were toying with fire. In 2005, Callahan testified before Congress as he was moving into his new office at DARPA. 
He concluded the hearing with a chilling warning about the nation's new commitment to Janus-faced gain-of-function science that doctors Fauci, Robert Cadlick, Callahan himself, and many others would proceed to blithely ignore, quote, the dark science of biological weapon design and manufacture parallels that of the health sciences and the cross-mixed disciplines of modern technology. Potential advances in biological weapon lethality will in part be the byproduct of peaceful scientific progress. So, until the time when there are no more terrorists, the U.S. government and the American people will depend on the scientific leaders of their field to identify any potential dark side aspect to every achievement, end quote. Even after leaving DARPA and USAID, Callahan periodically boasted of his continuing influence over U.S. pandemic response policies at the highest levels of government. He alluded to his confidence in these mysterious connections in 2012. I still have federal responsibilities to the White House for pandemic preparedness and exotic disease outbreak, which will continue for the near future. On January 4, 2020, Callahan called Dr. Robert Malone from China just as the coronavirus began taking its first wave of casualties. Malone, a former contractor to the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases and the chief medical officer at Alchem Laboratories, is the inventor of the mRNA vaccine technology platform. Malone first met Callahan in 2009 through Malone's sometime business partner, Daryl Galloway a CIA officer who formerly served in the U.S. Navy and at one point held the post of director of JSTO in the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. To Malone, Galloway introduced Callahan as a fellow CIA officer. During his January 4th phone call, Callahan told Malone that he was just outside Wuhan. Malone assumed that Callahan was visiting China under cover of his Harvard and Massachusetts General Hospital appointments. Callahan told Malone that he had been treating hundreds of COVID-19 patients. Callahan subsequently described to National Geographic how he had poured through thousands of case studies at the outbreak's epicenter. He giddily reported his amazement at the virus's magnificent infectivity and its capacity to explode like a silent smart bomb in your community. Callahan later confessed to Malone that he lacked authority to be in Wuhan and had escaped by boat when the government imposed its quarantine. Callahan repeated parts of this story to Brendan Borrell, a writer for Science. Later, DTRA scientist Davis Hone, a GS-15 officer, warned Malone to stop talking about Callahan, saying that we had no military personnel in Wuhan at the time of the outbreak, and Michael was lying about his presence. Malone told me that would mean that Michael also lied to Brendan Burrell. On leaving China, Callahan returned to Washington to brief federal officials and then went directly to work as a special advisor to Robert Cadlick, managing the government's response to the coronavirus. Robert Cadlick as Bad Santa, the El Hibri's cash-in by 2011, Bioport was already profiting handsomely in the bioweapons vaccine space. After 9-11, President Bush, 
presumably at the urging of Secretary Rumsfeld, Robert Cadlick, and Dr. Fauci, whose advice he valued, had placed Bioport's Michigan lab under protection in the national interest. El Hibri and his son, knowing on Gristle prior to October 4th, began fattening themselves on NIAID and BARDA contracts. With friends like Fauci and Cadlick in high places, Bioport, which changed its name to Emergent Biosolutions in 2004 to escape its checkered past, was enjoying the first bright days of the charmed journey that would place the El Hibris among the elite army of COVID-19 nouveau billionaires in 2021. After 2001, Rumsfeld's Pentagon agreed to hike Bioport's compensation by 30%, from $3.35 in its 1998 contract to $4.70 per dose, and to purchase anthrax shots for 2.4 million members of the armed forces, each of whom the military would require to receive six doses over an 18-month period. That was $60 million worth of poorly performing and unapproved vaccines for a threat that never again surfaced. The anthrax threat was always phantasmagoric. Since anthrax does not spread through human-to-human -human transmission, terrorists plotting an anthrax epidemic would need to somehow simultaneously release spores over dozens of U.S. cities. The anthrax deal was exceptionally ridiculous, since antibiotics are a far safer, more elegant, and more useful defense against anthrax. The prescribed remedy... Ciprofloxacin is a cheap, commonly used antibiotic that Tony Fauci himself recommended after the 2001 postal incidents. The best approach toward anthrax is antimicrobial therapy, Dr. Fauci admitted to Congress in 2007. Indeed, the night of the 9-11 attacks, the White House Medical Office thoughtfully and presciently dispensed ciprofloxacin to select White House staff who were accompanying Dick Cheney to the safety of Camp David. Furthermore, the El Hebris anthrax jab was by far the worst of a bad lot. According to the Times, Emergence anthrax vaccine was not the government's first choice. It was more than 30 years old and plagued by manufacturing challenges and complaints about side effects. Officials instead backed a company named VaxGen, which was developing a vaccine using newer technology licensed from the military. In 2004, the El Hibris co-founded, with their partner and former Joint Chiefs Chair Admiral William Crow, a lobbying group called the Alliance for Biosecurity as part of their strategy to secure lucrative BARDA-funded BioShield contracts and beat back upstart competitors like VaxGen. That lobbying group, recruited two of the Johns Hopkins Center for Biosecurity spooks with whom Cadlick had written the Dark Winter Simulation, Tara O'Toole and Colonel Randall Larson, and enlisted more than 50 lobbyists to successfully block VaxGen from muscling in on its locked-up anthrax government monopoly. With these sorts of friends in high places, Emergent made the national strategic stockpile an exclusive captive market. By 2006, VaxGen had lost its $800 million contract and was bankrupt, and Emergent remained the government's sole source monopoly.
Emergent then purchased VaxGen's anthrax vaccine for $2 million at pennies on the dollar. A 2021 New York Times expose titled How One Firm Put an Extraordinary Burden on the U.S.'s Troubled Stockpile documented Emergent's airtight domination of stockpile purchases. As Emergent prospered, other companies working on pandemic remedies for the stockpile were squeezed out of government spending decisions. Several federal health officials anonymously told the Times that preparations for an outbreak like COVID-19 almost always took a backseat to emergence anthrax vaccines. By 2011, the El Hibri's connections had put emergent in the driver's seat. Despite its vaccine's glaring and dangerous deficiencies, Emergent received $107 million in 2010 from Cadillac's baby, Barda, and up to $29 million from Fauci's NIAID to develop Nuthrax, its old anthrax vaccine with a new adjuvant, for large-scale manufacture in 2014. By 2010, Emergent's anthrax vaccine price had risen to about $28, now closer to $30 per dose with 75% gross profit margin for the El Hibris. As with Biothrax, the El Hibris never performed functional safety testing for Nuthrax, and the FDA has never approved the vaccine, but Barda recently contracted for $261 million of this experimental and notoriously dangerous unlicensed anthrax vaccine. By then, the company had grown from a single corporate office in Rockville, Maryland, to headquarters in Seattle, Munich, and Singapore. Its projects include developing vaccines for pandemic flu and tuberculosis in partnership with Oxford University and with funding from the Gates Foundation. Despite Nuthrax's failure to win FDA approval, Almost half of the strategic national stockpile's half-billion-dollar annual budget prior to 2020 went to emergence two anthrax vaccines, a cost that, according to the New York Times, left the government with less money to buy supplies needed in a pandemic. Some guardian angels with invisible hands seemed to catch the El Hibris every time they stumbled. In March 2021, Two federal officials anonymously told the New York Times that one year the government increased its order of emergence main anthrax vaccine by $100 million after the company insisted it needed the additional sales to stay in business. At the time that order was announced in 2016, the Federal Vaccine Stockpile Reserve already had enough to vaccinate more than 10 million people. The stockpile has long been the company's biggest and most reliable customer for its anthrax vaccines, which expire and need to be replaced every few years. After that, the cards really started breaking for the El Hibris. When Cadillac left the federal government, the El Hibris did not forget the man who rescued them from bankruptcy and possibly from arrest. In the summer of 2012, Fuad El Hibri made Robert Cadillac managing director and part owner of his own biodefense company, East-West Protection. The company received Pentagon backing that year to build a U.S. biodefense site in Utah in partnership with EHHS. CEO Bob Kramer told Forbes it was designed to prevent a future pandemic. 
With El Hibri Financing, Cadillac founded a company, RPK Consulting, which provided consulting services to a merchant until 2015. The firm paid Cadillac $451,000 in 2014 alone. In 2015, the El Hibris bought out Cadillac's shares of East-West, allowing him to take the post of Deputy Staff Director for the United States Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Two years later, President Donald Trump nominated Cadillac to become Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, ASPR, an office within Health and Human Services. During his confirmation process, Cadillac neglected to disclose his financial entanglements with the El Hibris on the Senate nomination forms. The El Hibris apparently anticipated a windfall for emergent from Cadillac's new posting. In July 2017, four days after Cadillac's nomination, Emergent announced that it was acquiring the rights to the smallpox vaccine from Sanofi Pasteur, the government's previous supplier. On August 3rd, the Senate confirmed Cadillac, and sure enough, although the U.S. taxpayers were now paying his salary, Cadillac never really stopped working for the El Hibris. And that year, Christmas arrived early for the Lebanese arms dealers. Immediately after his appointment, Cadillac maneuvered deftly to move management of the strategic national stockpile, which he had conceived and created from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to his own office, giving him authority over all acquisitions for the $7 billion contents. As soon as Emergent completed its acquisition of the Sanofi smallpox jab, Cadillac moved to increase the government's stockpile of these worthless and dangerous vaccines. Sanofi Pasteur had been charging the stockpile $4.27 per dose and had five years remaining on a 10-year government contract worth about $425 million. The El Hibris initially sought only a modest price increase, but Cadillac generously finalized a sweetheart deal with his friends and former business partners, doubling the five-year term that the El Hibris had requested to ten years. Cadillac also doubled the number of doses per year, from nine to eighteen million, and gave the El Hibris twice the price per dose that Sanofi received. Cadillac's new contract for the El Hibris promised emergent $9.44 per dose in the first year, with that figure rising annually throughout the contract term. In the end, Cadillac awarded the El Hibris a 10-year, $2.8 billion no-bid contract to purchase their smallpox vaccines. The stockpile was already overflowing with smallpox vaccines in 2018. The CDC reported on its website in June 2019 and continues to say that the stockpile already had sufficient smallpox vaccine for every American. Cadlick explained that his large purchase was necessary to keep the production base warm, another way of saying to keep the El Hibris fat. Cadlick wrapped his gift with a red ribbon, Cadlick's brazenly corrupt announcement that the stockpile would no longer fund Emergent's competitors. Emergent Biosolutions received more than $1.2 billion in contracts from Cadillac during the Trump years, with millions more coming from NIAID, 
and DARPA. Cadlick's brassy approach inspired awestruck admiration within the pharmaceutical industry. In March 2020, President Donald Trump's HHS Secretary Alex Azar, former Eli Lilly president and pharma lobbyist, designated Cadlick to lead the department's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Cadlick's appointment was a signal to Big Pharma of the impending orgy of ransack, pillage, and plunder. Naturally, the El Hibris would enjoy the king's share of booty. That same year, Cadlick invoked the emergency use authorization to purchase $370 million worth of the El Hibris' licensed and unlicensed anthrax vaccines. 2020 was the year with the largest sales of emergence anthrax vaccines to date. After the FDA authorized Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine for emergency use in February 2021, Cadillac pressured the pharmaceutical giant to sign a $480 million contract with the El Hibris to perform the manufacturing of J&J's COVID-19 jabs. Forbes headlined, Little-known publicly traded company given massive deal to manufacture one-shot COVID-19 vaccine. By June, Cadillac's Barda upped the ante with another $628 million gift to Emergent Biosolutions for scaling up production of targeted vaccine candidates. Emergent signed separate deals worth hundreds of millions with AstraZeneca, and Bill Gates's Novavax to manufacture vaccine doses at its Gaithersburg, Maryland factory. A March 7, 2021 New York Times expose about Emergent's crooked relationship with the government reported that a billion dollars in payments to the company for anthrax and smallpox vaccines took up almost half the strategic national stockpile's budget. Emergent had become the number one vendor to the stockpile. To finance these windfalls for the El Hibris, Cadillac needed to short other stockpile supplies. By the time the novel coronavirus emerged, the stockpile had only 12 million N95 respirators. Cadillac also scuttled an Obama-era initiative to spend a relatively trivial $35 million to build a machine that could produce 1.5 million N95 masks per day. To rationalize their inventory gaps, Cadillac pled poverty. The New York Times reported shocking shortfalls in protective gear for healthcare workers, ventilators, and masks just as the COVID-19 crisis called for them. Well aware of the situation, Cadillac was unwilling to free up money by reducing the supply of anthrax vaccines. The El Hibri's second sugar daddy, Dr. Anthony Fauci, was also raining down manna on Emergent. At the beginning of the pandemic, Emergent signed a development deal with NIAID for a plasma-derived therapy. Dr. Fauci aimed to incorporate the company's COVID-HIG product into one of NIAID's clinical studies, with initial funding of $14.5 million coming from Cadillac through BARDA. In turn, Cadillac supported Dr. Fauci's pet project, Moderna, the mRNA jab caper that Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates considered their holy grail. In mid-April 2020, Cadillac arranged for Barda to provide Moderna up to 
$483 million to accelerate the Fauci-Gates vaccine's development and manufacturing. That amounted to about half of what BARDA doled out to all of Moderna's competitors combined, including Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, and AstraZeneca. Cadillac was also generous to Bill Gates, arranging a $1.6 billion grant, the largest to date, from Operation Warp Speed to Gates's biotech selection, Novavax. Although the company, based in Gaithersburg, Maryland, had never brought a vaccine to market in its 33-year history and was then on the verge of collapse, Gates and his obedient minions at the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness, CEPI, had placed a bet on Novavax's technology, which uses moth cells to pump out crucial molecules at a faster rate than typical vaccines. Cadlick's generosity with his warp-speed wampum caused Novavax's stock to surge 30%. John J. Trezino, Novavax's chief business and financial officer, said the company did nothing inappropriate but acknowledged that it used its connections to Gates to help win the deals. In September 2019, less than a month before COVID began circulating, the Gates Foundation made a $55 million pre-IPO equity investment in BioNTech. The company also had never brought a single product to market. Soon afterward, the German government followed Gates with a $445 million infusion into BioNTech. On July 21, 2020, when Robert Cadlick committed Operation Warp Speed to a $2 billion purchase of 100 million doses of BioNTech Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine, the company's stock value soared, with Bill Gates's equity shares increasing to an evaluation of $1.1 billion. In October 2020, Emergent became one of four companies collaborating on a clinical trial for a combination treatment regimen that included Dr. Fauci's drug Remdesivir as a background therapy. The company said in a statement, Emergent is proud to continue our partnership with NIAID, NIH, and BARDA to advance potential therapeutic solutions for COVID-19 in hospitalized patients. Bill Gates owned a large stake in Remdesivir's manufacturer, Gilead. WHO's own studies showed clearly, as even WHO acknowledged, that Remdesivir was useless against COVID. Worse, the drug's extreme toxicity, Remdesivir's side effects mimic the late-stage symptoms of COVID, may actually aggravate the severity of the illness. To overcome these obstacles, Dr. Fauci financed and rigged a suite of flawed studies to suggest, deceptively, that remdesivir might slightly reduce the number of days a patient would stay in the hospital. The WHO's much larger studies proved that there was no reduction in length of hospital stay. Nevertheless, using his blatantly orchestrated research, Dr. Fauci then forced remdesivir's approval through FDA as standard of care for COVID. At the same time, Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates were financing and promoting studies to discredit chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine and sabotage ivermectin, 
two effective COVID remedies that posed an existential threat to remdesivir and the entire Fauci-Gates COVID vaccine enterprise. Emergence CEO Robert Kramer boasted to Wall Street analysts in February 2021 that the year had been the strongest year in our 22-year history. The New York Times reported that Emergence stock had reached such a zenith that Fuad El-Hibri cashed in shares and options worth over $42 million, more than he had redeemed in the previous five years combined. When in April 2021, Emergent Biosolutions ruined 15 million Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccines due to quality control mishaps at its poorly managed Baltimore production facility, Congress launched an investigation into whether Emergent used high-level connections to get billions of dollars in federal contracts despite a history of failing to deliver satisfactorily on its contracts. Congressional investigators also raised concerns about emergence, inadequate staff training, persistent quality control issues, and the company stiffing the government with an unjustified 800% price increase for its anthrax vaccine. The Democratic chairs of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform and Select Oversight Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis focused their inquiry on Cadillac's role. In a letter, the committee chairs complained that Cadillac appears to have pushed for the $628 million award to Emergent to develop a COVID vaccine factory, despite indications that Emergent did not have the ability to reliably fulfill the contract. As the top dog among the COVID-19 pandemic's government managers, Cadillac had promoted Emergent as the United States' primary vaccine manufacturing facility. In April 2021, the Times published another extensive expose reporting that Emergent had not yet been able to produce a single acceptable dose of any COVID-19 vaccine. Following exposés in the New York Times and the Washington Post, J&J took over the production at that plant. The FDA stepped in after inspecting the facility and ordered Emergent to halt all production of materials for COVID-19 vaccines pending a review and remediation and to quarantine all existing materials. HHS ordered Emergent to discard millions of contaminated doses. Instead, in March 2021, the company shipped millions of doses of its defective vaccines to Canada, Europe, South Africa, and Mexico. The House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis held a hearing on May 19, 2021, and ordered Emergent to turn over all its federal contracts since 2015 and all communications with Robert Cadlick. Emergent's political invincibility left the company unbowed by all those scandals. In July 2020, Emergent announced a five-year, $450 million deal to manufacture COVID drugs for Johnson & Johnson. In February 2021, HHS awarded Emergent another contract, this one worth up to $22 million to develop a COVID-19 therapy. Atlantic Storm 2003-2005 
In January of 2003, and again in 2005, a cabal of U.S. and European military, intelligence, and medical officials germ-gamed another exercise they called Atlantic Storm. Thomas V. Inglesby and the Spooks, Tara O'Toole and Colonel Randall J. Larson were the simulation's principal authors. Both the 1999 HHS smallpox simulation and the June 2001 dark winter smallpox simulation focused ominously not on public health, but on the quandary of how to impose control over U.S. and global populations during public health emergencies, how to sweep away civil rights and impose mass obedience to military and medical technocrats. Atlantic Storm further probed these sinister disquisitions. High-level government figures, including Madeleine Albright playing the President of the United States and WHO Director General Gro Harlem Brundtland playing herself, hosted a summit of transatlantic military and intelligence agency planners coordinating responses after a radical terrorist band unleashes smallpox. According to the After Action Report, the key issues for summit principles were coping with scarcity of critical medical resources such as vaccines and assuring a uniform, coordinated response among all governments in the world. The simulation stressed the inadequacy of current multilateral frameworks like NATO and the EU to cope with social, economic, and political disruption from an international epidemic be it natural or the result of a bioterrorist attack, and emphasize the importance of developing systems to coordinate global lockstep security protocols that went beyond just stockpiling vaccines or training more doctors. Characteristically, the assembled eminences bypassed any discussion of bolstering people's immune system response or testing and distributing off-label therapeutics and went directly to recommending militarized strategies, including police state controls, mass propaganda and censorship, and the suspension of civil rights and due process rulemaking in favor of diktats by health authorities, all aimed at coercive vaccination of the population. These scenarios, which health officials and spooks conceived of and gamed back in 2005, became our collective reality in 2020 and 2021. Global Mercury 2003 Between September 8th and 10th of that same year, the spooks at the U.S. State Department Office of the Coordinator for Counterterrorism organized another scenario exercise dubbed Global Mercury with the CDC, the NIH, the FDA, the WHO, and the Department of State. Over a 56-hour period, public health technocrats coordinated communications and lockstep response between trusted agents from the GHSAG nations, the United States, the UK, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and Mexico, during a simulated outbreak after self-inoculated terrorists spread smallpox to countries around the world. The SCL Simulation 2005 Atlantic Storm and Global Mercury 
were additional loud notes amplifying persistent Pentagon signals that biosecurity was the emerging growth sector for national defense. In response to such toxins, private military contractors began thronging to the pandemic surveillance and psyops sector like hogs to a corn crib. Long before Robert Mercer, with his daughter Rebecca, became Donald Trump's biggest private donors, and before they launched the right-wing social media platform Parler, he created the first private sector provider of psychological warfare services in 1993. The Mercer's Strategic Communication Laboratories, SCL Group, was the parent company to the notorious data-manipulating firm Cambridge Analytica. This brand-new PSYOPs firm, headquartered in the UK, drew some of the largest crowds in 2005 when it set up a high-tech propaganda ops center at the UK's annual military technology showcase. As a contemporary article in Slate described the SCL simulation, classic signs of smallpox are threatening a pandemic of epic proportions when a shadowy media firm steps in to help orchestrate a sophisticated campaign of mass deception. SCL takes on the task of convincing the entire country's population to comply with lockdown rules by inventing a lie about an unleashed cloud of toxic chemicals. The mission's objective is to prevent mass panic and casualties from the classified threat of smallpox. SCL feeds disinformation to the press and manufactures medical data. Londoners stay indoors, convinced that even a short walk into the streets could be fatal. The article continues, If SCL weren't so earnest, it might actually seem to be mocking itself, or perhaps George Orwell. At the end of the smallpox scenario, dramatic music fades out to a taped message urging buyers to embrace strategic communications, which it describes as the most powerful weapon in the world. What makes SCL's strategy so unusual is that it proposes to propagate its campaign domestically, at least some of the time, and rather than influence just opinion, it wants people to take a particular course of action. The company based its PSYOPs strategies on propaganda techniques developed by a virtual lab called the Behavioral Dynamics Institute, run out of Leeds University by Professor Phil Taylor, a consultant to UK and American defense agencies, until his death at 56 in 2010. The article identified SCL only as funded by private investors. Company chief Nigel Oakes described its nefarious skullduggery as mind-bending for political purposes. In a March 20, 2018 interview with Yahoo Finance, Oakes described himself as a man without much of an ethical radar. According to SCL's public affairs director Mark Broughton, Basically, we're launching ourselves on the defense market and homeland security market at the same time. Aware that the company might face criticism over its promotion of totalitarian security states, Broughton emphasized to Slate the company's role in saving lives. There is some altruism in it, he said grudgingly, but we also want to earn money. How War Games Became Instruments for Imposing Obedience Dark Winter, Atlantic Storm, 
and Global Mercury were only three of over a dozen germ games staged by military, medical, and intelligence planners leading up to COVID-19. Each of these Kafka-esque exercises became uncanny predictors of a dystopian age that pandemic planners dubbed the new normal. The consistent feature is an affinity among their simulation designers for militarizing medicine and introducing centralized autocratic governance. Each rehearsal ends with the same grim punchline. The global pandemic is an excuse to justify the imposition of tyranny and coerced vaccination. The repetition of these exercises suggests that they serve as a kind of rehearsal or training drill for an underlying agenda to coordinate the global dismantlement of democratic governance. Military intelligence analysts first introduced scenario planning as a strategic device during World War II. RAND's iconic military planner, Herman Kahn, used sophisticated war game simulations to model nuclear engagement strategies in the Cold War era. Working for Royal Dutch Shell, futurologists Pierre Wack and Peter Schwartz of the Global Business Network, GBN, pioneered scenario planning simulations as a strategic device for their corporate clients in the 1970s and 1980s. By the millennium, simulations had evolved into an indispensable vehicle for military policymakers, intelligence agency planners, public health technocrats, and the petroleum and pharmaceutical multinationals for reinforcing prescribed responses that allow predictable and rigid control of the outcomes of future crises. After 9-11, the rising biosecurity cartel adopted simulations as signaling mechanisms for choreographing lockstep response among corporate, political, and military technocrats charged with managing global exigencies. Scenario planning became an indispensable device for multiple power centers to coordinate complex strategies for simultaneously imposing coercive controls upon democratic societies across the globe. Virtually all of the scenario planning for pandemics employ technical assumptions and strategies familiar to anyone who has read the CIA's notorious psychological warfare manuals for shattering indigenous societies, obliterating traditional economics and social bonds, for using imposed isolation and the demolition of traditional economies to crush resistance, to foster chaos, demoralization, dependence, and fear, and for imposing centralized and autocratic governance. In particular, the exercises incorporate PSYOP techniques gleaned from the notorious Milgram obedience experiments. In those 1960s exercises, Yale social psychology professor Dr. Stanley Milgram was able to show that researchers could formulaically manipulate ordinary citizens from all walks of life to violate their own conscience and commit atrocities, so long as an authority figure, a doctor in a white lab coat, ordered them to do so. The subjects believed they were torturing fellow volunteers by electrocution, out of sight in an adjacent room. As a doctor instructed them to rev up the juice, the recruits could hear the nightmarish screaming of actors pretending to be suffering electrocution and their pleadings for mercy. Of Milgram's 40 subjects, 
Some 65% administered the full-bore 450-volt shocks they had been told were potentially fatal. Milgram described his experiments as proof that obedience to authority trumps morality and conscience. Stark authority was pitted against the subject's strongest moral imperatives against hurting others, and with the subject's ears ringing with the screams of the victims, authority won more often than not. The extreme willingness of adults to go to almost any lengths on the command of an authority constitutes the chief finding of the study. In his book, A Question of Torture, CIA Interrogation from the Cold War to the War on Terror, University of Wisconsin historian Alfred W. McCoy suggests that the Yale obedience experiments were funded by the CIA as part of MKUltra's studies on the control of human behavior. During that time, the CIA funneled money through various federal agencies to fund 185 independent researchers to perform sinister behavioral manipulation studies at universities across North America. Milgram first proposed his obedience research in a 1960 solicitation to the Group Psychology Branch of the Office of Naval Research, ONR, a key conduit for the CIA's MKUltra mind control experiments. The dean who hired Milgram later as a professor at City University of New York was a former deputy director of ONR. Milgram's Yale mentor was Irving L. Janus, who wrote the seminal Air Force study of Soviet mind control and hypnosis for the RAND Corporation. Milgram's other connections to the CIA's psychological warfare program are too numerous to mention here. In an equally important revelation, the CIA mind control experiments identified social isolation as the primary protocol for controlling societal and individual behavior. In 1960, one of the agency's most active contractors, Lawrence Hinkle of Cornell, confirmed the significance of social isolation for the CIA mind control effort in light of the neurological literature, the most promising of all known techniques. The CIA's research found that the effect of isolation on the brain function on an individual is much like that which occurs if he is beaten, starved, or deprived of sleep. Social isolation affects organic brain development and the human body, length of life, cardiovascular health, and so on. Social isolation doubles the risk of death in blacks while increasing the risk of early death in Caucasians by 60 to 84 percent, while other studies show that it is safer to smoke 15 cigarettes a day or be an alcoholic than to be socially isolated. Meta-analysis co-authored by Julianne Holt-Lundstad, Ph.D., a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University, found that lack of social connection heightens health risks as much as smoking 15 cigarettes a day or having alcohol use disorder. Holt-Lundstad also found that social isolation is twice as harmful to physical and mental health as obesity. There is robust evidence that social isolation significantly increases risk for premature mortality and the magnitude of the risk exceeds that of many leading health indicators. NIH's collaboration with the CIA in these odious torture, obedience, and brainwashing experiments heaps additional ignominy on the agency. 
During the 1950s, NIH scientist Dr. Maitland Baldwin conducted social isolation experiments on monkeys and humans at NIH headquarters and CIA safe houses. MKUltra's experiments used expendables, people whose deaths or disappearances would go unnoticed, including a rather gruesome experiment in which Baldwin had subjected a soldier to 40 hours of isolation, causing him to go insane and to kick apart the box in which Maitland imprisoned him. Maitland, who told his Operation Artichoke case officer that isolating subjects for over 40 hours could cause irreparable damage and perhaps be terminal, nevertheless agreed to go forward if the agency could provide cover and subjects. The various scenario planning simulations provided a unique forum to convene key decision-makers and to introduce, and then to sanction, with authoritative voices, previously unspeakable conduct that violated democratic and ethical norms. That conduct included the forced isolation and quarantine of entire populations, including the healthy, censoring free speech, violating privacy with track and trace surveillance systems, trampling property rights and religious freedoms, and obliterating traditional economies via nationwide business lockdowns, enforced masking, coercive medical interventions, and other assaults on human rights, civil rights, constitutions, and democracies. With each new simulation, the staccato repetition of the message by trusted experts, doctors in lab coats, and authoritative collectives like Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, Senator Sam Nunn, WHO Director General Gro Harlem Brundtland, and Senator Tom Daschle, reinforced the lesson that censorship, isolation, the militarization of medicine, totalitarian controls, and coercive vaccine mandates are the only appropriate response to pandemics. Scenario planning, in other words, is a potent brainwashing technique for creating and fortifying anti-democratic orthodoxies among key political leaders, the press, and the technocracy, and preparing the nation to tolerate a coup d'etat against its constitution without resistance. Lockstep Simulation, 2010 In 2009, President Obama declared biosecurity as the spear tip of U.S. foreign policy, dispersing memos to all government agencies instructing them to integrate biosecurity into their mission. By 2010, U.S. spy agencies were demonstrating a growing interest in vaccines as a foreign policy instrument. Just as the Cold War and later on the War on Terror had rationalized U.S. military presence across the world as a bulwark against brushfire nationalist rebellions purportedly orchestrated by a communist monolith, vaccination programs could justify interventions in developing countries with high disease burdens as a tool for social and political control. In 2010, the WHO pronounced biosecurity as the centerpiece of its approach for managing global risks. That same month, as Bill Gates delivered his Decade of Vaccines speech at the UN, biosecurity, the war on microbes, was already eclipsing the war on Islamic terrorism as the preferred driver of the security state cartel. A few days later, 
Pierre Schwartz authored a scenario report funded by the Rockefeller Foundation titled Scenarios for the Future of Technology and International Development. A section called Lockstep reinforced the burgeoning orthodoxy that rigid global tyranny was the antidote to infectious disease. It reads, In 2012, the pandemic that the world had been anticipating for years finally hit. Unlike 2009's H1N1, this new influenza strain, originating from wild geese, was extremely virulent and deadly. Even the most pandemic-prepared nations were quickly overwhelmed when the virus streaked around the world, infecting nearly 20% of the global population and killing 8 million in just seven months. The pandemic also had a deadly effect on economies. International mobility of both people and goods screeched to a halt, debilitating industries like tourism and breaking global supply chains. Even locally, normally bustling shops and office buildings sat empty for months, devoid of both employees and customers. During the pandemic, national leaders around the world flexed their authority and imposed airtight rules and restrictions, from the mandatory wearing of face masks to body temperature checks at the entries to communal spaces like train stations and supermarkets. Even after the pandemic faded, this more authoritarian control and oversight of citizens and their activities stuck and even intensified. In order to protect themselves from the spread of increasingly global problems, from pandemics and transnational terrorism to environmental crises and rising poverty, leaders around the world took a firmer grip on power. Schwartz's chilling document goes on to predict that citizens terrified by germs and orchestrated propaganda willingly relinquish their civil and constitutional rights. The population, Schwartz predicts, will not start rebelling against the new tyranny and authoritarian clampdowns for more than 10 years. Intelligence agencies left their fingerprints all over these scenario planning exercises. Schwartz, like O'Toole, Larson, Cadlick, Woolsey, and David, is one of the many leading promoters of weaponized vaccines as a foreign policy tool with deep connections to the intelligence apparatus. Schwartz's resume chronicles multiple touchpoints with spy agencies before and after he authored the lockstep scenario. In 1972, Schwartz joined the Stanford Research Institute, later SRI International, an early pioneer in computer technology and artificial intelligence. Schwartz rose to run SRI's Strategic Environment Center at a time when SRI was hosting the CIA's notorious MKUltra program and actively researching psychological warfare, including the sophisticated use of propaganda, torture, and psychiatric chemicals to shatter societies and impose centralized control. Schwartz left to become head of scenario planning for Royal Dutch Shell. He then co-founded the Global Business Network, GBN, in 1987, as a corporate consultant specializing in analyzing intelligence and in future think strategies, Shell Oil was GBN's highest revenue client. In the early 1990s, Ken McCarthy, who would become an early pioneer of practical efforts to commercialize the Internet, 
met Schwartz at a large Thanksgiving gathering in a remote location in rural Harris, California. Schwartz introduced himself to McCarthy, an anthropology graduate from Princeton, and Schwartz began probing McCarthy's interest in being recruited for a contract with an unnamed West African country that involved weakening tribal and family structures on behalf of a federal government. Recalling the encounter, McCarthy told me, I found Schwartz's proposal intensely disturbing. Schwartz dismissed McCarthy's qualms as naive. McCarthy says, It made a lasting impression on me, so much so that I've recounted the story many times over the years. Schwartz's client, Shell Oil, had extensive oil holdings in the Agoni region of Nigeria. In 1995, the Nigerian government executed Agoni environmental leader, writer, and television producer Ken Sarawiwa and eight other environmental organizers based on charges that they had incited violence. Sarawiwa's arrest, trial by a military tribunal, and subsequent execution followed a harassment campaign against him and other Agoni environmental leaders, which started in 1993 after they repeatedly mobilized peaceful demonstrations against Shell, attracting over 300,000 of the region's total population of 600,000. The United Nations General Assembly and the European Union condemned Sarawiwa's execution, and the United States recalled its ambassador to Nigeria. In 1993, Schwartz, along with Stuart Brand and Nicholas Negroponte, was one of the driving forces behind the founding of Wired magazine, which became the central clearinghouse for mainstream news coverage of the burgeoning online ecosystem. Wired quickly earned notoriety as a clearinghouse for intelligence agency Chatter. Prior to Wired, Mondo 2000, the Bay Area's original tech and culture magazine, reflected the progressive, idealistic viewpoints of many of the pioneer tech innovators. In contrast, Wired, which appropriated Mondo 2000's look and feel and no small number of its employees, glorified military and intelligence agency celebrities and corporate CEOs who happened to be clients of Nicholas Negroponte's MIT lab. Wired gained snowballing prominence in the early 2000s at the same time that the CIA launched its notorious investment firm NQTEL to infiltrate the tech industry and put Silicon Valley on steroids with easy terms and government contracts. Scenario planner Tara O'Toole served as NQTEL's executive vice president. It's worth recalling here that the defense and intelligence agencies had a beachhead in the tech industry from its birth. The Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, DARPA, created the Internet by building the ARPANET grid in 1969. DARPA is the Pentagon's angel investor and venture fund. In addition to creating the Internet, DARPA developed GPS, stealth bombers, weather satellites, pilotless drones, and the M-16 rifle. DARPA was perhaps the largest funder of gain-of-function research outstripping even Dr. Fauci's NIH in some years. In 2017 alone, DARPA laundered at least $6.5 million through Peter Daszak's EcoHealth Alliance to fund experiments at the Wuhan lab. 
DARPA funded additional gain-of-function experiments at Fort Detrick and other biosecurity research at Battelle's laboratory at St. Joseph, Missouri. Beginning in 2013, DARPA also financed the key technologies for the Moderna vaccine. In 2002, DARPA set off a firestorm among human rights advocates from the left and right by creating a comprehensive data mining system under President Reagan's National Security Advisor, Admiral John Poindexter. Public protests forced DARPA to scuttle that project, but critics have accused the agency of using the technology to help launch Facebook. By remarkable coincidence, DARPA shut down its Facebook-like project LifeLog, a venture that involved MIT contractors the very same month, February 2004, that Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook, just a 30-minute walk up the Charles River in Cambridge, Massachusetts, on the campus of Harvard University. In 2010, DARPA's visionary director, Dr. Regina Dugan, moved to Google as an executive, and in 2016, she transferred to Google's competitor, Facebook, running a mysterious project called Building 8. In 2018, she moved again to run Welcome Leap, a health technology breakthrough innovation project of Welcome Trust. Her peregrinations offer another example of the incestuous links between big tech, big pharma, and the military and intelligence agencies. According to veteran CIA officer Kevin Shipp, Silicon Valley CEOs who accepted InQtel contracts would become some of the 4.8 million Americans subsequently pressured into signing CIA state secret contracts, which subject signatories to 20-year prison sentences, property forfeitures, and other draconian reprisals imposed by secret courts for even minor violations of arbitrary provisions, including admitting to signing the contract. Once he signs that secrecy agreement, that Silicon Valley entrepreneur is now functionally the indentured servant of the agency. It binds him and his company for life, and the agreement itself is classified. Wired's seed funding came from MIT Media Lab founder Nicholas Negroponte, whose brother John Negroponte was the first director of national intelligence, notorious for his support of Central American death squads. Wired's central function was to scrub every last particle of progressive thinking from reporting on the then-developing online world and to promote a pro-military, pro-corporate, pro-intelligence agency view within the digital media and technology community, according to McCarthy, who lived and worked in San Francisco in the 1990s and organized the first conference on monetizing the web. When he saw his first copy of Wired, Dr. Timothy Leary reportedly called it the CIA's answer to Mondo 2000. In 2015, Wired emerged as a promoter of a particular brand of autism epidemic denial known as neurodiversity. By normalizing autism as neurodiversity, this movement seeks to dilute autism numbers, deny the vaccine association, and promote the larger view that all vaccines are safe and vaccine injuries are the delusions of crackpots. This movement has spawned an army of activist trolls 
weaponized to attack autism researchers, advocacy groups, and even families of vaccine-injured children. Steve Silberman, a writer for Wired since 2010, published the book Neurotribes in 2015 to massive acclaim and highly orchestrated publicity. It became the manifesto for the new autism rights movements, which also demonize medical freedom and food safety advocates. Its tactics include online attacks and aggressive disruption of public events, including conferences and film screenings. Wired is also the fountainhead of the equally sinister movement Transhumanism, which advocates for the integration of human beings and machines. The movement's ancillary aims include extending the lifespans of key Silicon Valley billionaires indefinitely and liberating humanity from biological restraints using AI, novel therapies like stem cells and nanobots, vaccination, and subdermal chips. Jacques Ellul, an early pioneer, described transhumanism's elegant capacity for top-down control of humanity. He said, For the psycho-civilized society, the complete joining of man and machine will be calculated according to a strict system, the so-called biocracy. It will be impossible to escape this system of adaption because it will be articulated with so much scientific understanding of the human being. The individual will have no more need of conscience and virtues. His moral and mental furnishing will be a matter of the biocrat's decisions. Transhumanism, in its various doctrinal approaches, has fervent acolytes among the Silicon Valley elites, including C-suite titans at Microsoft, Facebook, Tesla's Elon Musk, Google engineering director Raymond Kurzweil, PayPal founder Peter Thiel, satellite and biotechnology titan Martine Rothblatt, and Bill Gates. InQtel has made transhumanism one of the persistent themes of its long-term investment strategies. Not everyone is a fan. Francis Fukuyama has called the transhumanism movement the greatest threat to humanity. Schwartz served as a consultant on the 1998 sci-fi disaster film Deep Impact and the 1992 futuristic film Minority Report, which follows a special pre-crime police unit able to arrest murderers before they commit their crimes. Emerging reality seldom disappoints Schwartz's past predictions. In 2020, a Chinese whistleblower revealed that the Chinese government has widely deployed facial recognition technologies that can detect guilty thoughts against dissident minority groups. A March 3, 2021 article in The Guardian predicts that demands by government enforcement agencies will make remote emotion detection technologies a $36 billion industry by 2023. Schwartz's augering skills are legendary. One of his early plots for GBN scenarios tested strategies by a major airline for surviving a coronavirus pandemic. Time Magazine's 2004 profile focused on Schwartz's unerring prognosticating. Very rarely have we really missed, he told Time of his forecasting. More often, our failure is in getting people to take it seriously. The Time article mentioned one of his most impressive fortune-telling stunts. In 2000, as part of a study for a Senate commission, Schwartz predicted 
the horrifying possibility of terrorists flying planes into the World Trade Center. In 2016, as Senior Vice President of Strategic Planning at Salesforce.com, Schwartz chaired a session at the World Government Summit titled How Governments Get Ready for the Unthinkable. 3,000 participants from 125 countries attended that year. Barack Obama delivered the keynote speech. Klaus Schwab, president of the World Economic Forum and the head of the World Bank, put a happy face on global crisis as a potential path to the cashless society so coveted by international banksters. The digital currency is it the way of the future. In 2014, Schwartz conducted an offstage interview with Schwab at a Salesforce conference on the future of global governance, following a speech by Hillary Clinton, in which the two men forecast the merger of new devices with the human brain allowing machinery to control our brains with our souls and our hearts. They applauded the concept of biology as part of the new technological and scientific revolution and praised the capacity of the Internet to integrate in a continuous interaction with the machinery of the human mind to control aberrant and criminal behavior, i.e. dissent, and to challenge people's sacred identities. Schwartz describes a machine-driven evolution that will supplant emotional intelligence with knowledge and data. According to Schwab, a new intelligence will be distributed and, of course, will accelerate even more technological progress. If you combine, let's say, brain research with big data, you have fantastic new areas with tremendous application for controlling behavior. Schwartz lauds Salesforce as a participant in this process. As chief futures officer for Salesforce, Schwartz currently markets a vaccine management software platform that allows governments to track, trace, monetize, and enforce vaccine compliance among global populations. An autumn 2021 video describes the latest factors impacting our ability to move out of multiple pandemic-driven global crises and promotes Salesforce's software as the solution. Schwartz predicts a dystopian future in which ever-evolving mutant strains of SARS-CoV-2 drive skyrocketing death rate curves and presumably ballooning pharma profits, making the race between the vaccines and a virus the conflict that will define the world economy and civilization's future. The Salesforce system is elaborate and provides local governments the ability to establish a credential ID system. InQtel markets a competitive technology, BeNext, for tracking and tracing, facilitating pandemic management. Given the reality of the capacity of most government information technology, IT departments, national, state, and local, it's fair to say that without Salesforce.com, InQtel, and other companies like IBM, the planning and execution of population-wide vaccination programs of the kind Dr. Fauci and others called for would have been logistically impossible, says McCarthy. Training Day for Tyranny By 2010, the Fauci-Gates partnership was spearheading the globalist biosecurity agenda. Bill Gates began partnering with military and intelligence planners to stage regular follow-up simulations, 
Each successive drill repeated the narrative of Schwartz's lockstep scenario for different audiences of key power brokers. These exercises served as devices for planners to rehearse their schemes with critical functionaries and to coordinate communications and choreograph the actions of diverse government, industry, military, intelligence, energy, and financial power centers in their lockstep march to replace constitutional democracy with authoritarian plutocracy. The global war against infectious diseases provided the rationale for oppressive government and corporate interventions. The arsenal for this war is the endless batteries of mandated vaccines to combat the diseases weaponized by gain-of-function experiments and marketed by sophisticated government corporate propaganda. In February 2017, Gates told the Munich Security Conference, the leading global convention on international security policy, that we ignore the link between health security and international security at our peril. He warned that a highly lethal global pandemic will occur in our lifetimes by a quirk of nature or at the hand of a terrorist. The world needs to prepare for epidemics the way the military prepares for war. Mars 2017 by mid-2017, the Rockefeller Foundation and intelligence agency planners had passed to Bill Gates their baton as the primary funder and frontman for the military intelligence community's increasingly regular pandemic simulations. In May, the health ministries for the world's wealthiest 20 G20 nations assembled for the first time, gathering in Berlin to participate in a joint exercise scenario with an imagined China responding to a contagion dubbed Mars for mountain-associated respiratory virus. Mars is also the Roman god of war. German governmental institutions collaborated to produce the simulation with the Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the World Bank, the WHO, and the Robert Koch Institute, RKI. The ministers hailed from the United States, Russia, India, China, Britain, France, Germany, Canada, Argentina, Brazil, Korea, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, South Africa, Turkey, and the European Union. The exercise's two moderators also worked closely with the Gates Foundation. David Heyman served simultaneously as chair of the UK's Centre on Global Health Security and as an epidemiologist with the Gates-funded London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Heyman also sits with Moderna CEO Stefan Bonsell on the Mariu Foundation USA board. BioMariu is the French company that built the Wuhan lab. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, Heyman has chaired the WHO's Scientific Technical Advisory Group for Infectious Hazards. The other moderator of the 2017 simulation was Professor Ilona Kickbush, a member of Gates's Global Preparedness Monitoring Board. Over two days, the global health ministry officials and other guest countries and international representatives bore witness to a timeline of the unfolding pandemic known as MARS, a novel respiratory virus spread from busy markets in a mountainous border region of an unnamed but China-like country 
to nations around the globe. Only draconian clampdowns by neighboring governments and heroic WHO technocrats orchestrating a tightly choreographed, centralized global response save humanity from a chaotic, dystopian apocalypse. In an hour-long documentary about that event, German journalist Paul Schreyer shows the health ministers intently studying the simulation exercises. When we look at that picture, Schreyer says, we might comprehend a bit better why in today's crisis all or at least most of the countries are proceeding very coordinatedly and why in every country more or less the same is acted out. They were given the same general recipes and procedural instructions that are now being realized in a synchronized way. SPARS 2017 Five months later, in October 2017, Gates convened yet another tabletop pandemic at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, the Global Biosecurity Command Center. Gates's foundation, along with NIAID and NIH, are major funders of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. SPARS 2017 chronicled an imaginary coronavirus pandemic that would supposedly run from 2025 to 2028. The exercise turned out to be an eerily precise predictor of the COVID-19 pandemic exactly three years later. Gates's working group, which staged the exercise, was a collection of characters with deep connections to intelligence agencies and NIH. They included Luciana Borio, vice president of the CIA's NQTEL, and Joseph Buccina, director of intelligence community support and B-Next operations at NQTEL. Prior to joining B-Next, Buccina was a program manager for NQTEL's biotech portfolio, which works with tech startups specializing in enhanced products for the intelligence and defense communities. Matthew Shearer, a senior analyst at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and associate editor of the peer-reviewed journal Health Security, would discover the first U.S. cases of coronavirus in Seattle in February 2020. Walter Orenstein, M.D., is a former Surgeon General who managed CDC's fraudulent efforts to suppress the science linking autism to vaccines from 1999 to 2004. He left HHS to serve as Deputy Director for Immunization Programs at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and advisor to WHO. Another working group member was vaccine developer Dr. Gregory Poland, whom the National Institutes of Health has continuously funded since 1991. Building on the Pentagon's anthrax simulation 1999 and the intelligence agency's dark winter in 2001, Atlantic Storm 2003-2005, Global Mercury 2003, Schwartz's lockstep scenario document 2010, and Mars 2017, the Gates-funded SPARS scenario wargamed a bioterrorist attack that precipitated a global coronavirus epidemic lasting from 2025 to 2028, culminating in coercive mass vaccination of the global population. And as Gates had promised, 
the preparations were analogous to preparing for war. Under the codename Spars Pandemic, Gates presided over a sinister summer school for globalists, spooks, and technocrats in Baltimore. The panelists role-played strategies for co-opting the world's most influential political institutions, subverting democratic governance, and positioning themselves as unelected rulers of the emerging authoritarian regime. They practiced techniques for ruthlessly controlling dissent, expression, and movement, and degrading civil rights, autonomy, and sovereignty. The Gates simulation focused on deploying the usual psyops retinue of propaganda, surveillance, censorship, isolation, and political and social control to manage the pandemic. The official 89-page summary is a miracle of fortune-telling, an uncannily precise month-by-month prediction of the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic as it actually unfolded. Looked at another way, when it erupted five years later, the 2020 COVID-19 contagion faithfully followed the SPARS blueprint. Practically the only thing Gates and his planners got wrong was the year. Gates's simulation instructs public health officials and other collaborators in the global vaccine cartel exactly what to expect and how to behave during the upcoming plague. Reading through the 89 pages, it's difficult not to interpret this stunningly prescient document as a planning, signaling, and training exercise for replacing democracy with a new regimen of militarized global medical tyranny. The scenario directs participants to deploy fear-driven propaganda narratives to induce mass psychosis and to direct the public toward unquestioning obedience to the emerging social and economic order. According to the scenario narrative, a so-called SPARS coronavirus ignites in the United States in January 2025. The COVID-19 pandemic began in January 2020. As the WHO declares a global emergency, the federal government contracts a fictional firm that resembles Moderna. Consistent with Gates's seeming preference for diabolical cognomens, the firm is dubbed SynBio to develop an innovative vaccine using new plug-and-play technology. In the scenario, and now in real life, federal health officials invoke the PrEP Act to provide vaccine makers liability protection. Another company in this scenario receives an emergency use authorization for a remdesivir-like antiviral named calosevir that federal officials previously evaluated as a therapeutic for SARS and MERS. This item seems to predict Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates's aggressive promotion of a failed Ebola drug remdesivir during the pandemic as standard of care for COVID-19. Dr. Fauci helped develop the drug, and Gates has a substantial equity stake in its manufacturer, Gilead. The two men promoted remdesivir during the earlier Ebola and Zika pandemics, despite its stunning inadequacy as a remedy for these ailments. Promotion of remdesivir and the simultaneous Gates-Fauci orchestrated suppression of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine collectively, as we shall see, caused hundreds of thousands of deaths in the United States alone. According to the scenario, by late January, SPARS has spread to every state, 
and 42 countries. In record speed, a coalition of ingenious corporate and heroic government officials miraculously produce a new vaccine, Corovax, just in time for a July 2026 emergency use authorization rollout. This medical marvel meets resistance from several nuisance groups who complain that the companies have not adequately tested the jab. Among these ingrates are African Americans, alternative medicine enthusiasts, and a rapidly growing members of an anti-vaccination movement who bellyache on social media. But government and industry leaders depicted in those 89 pages have plans to silence and censor these dangerous elements and to crush all resistance. The SPARS team responds with a flood of propaganda to drown doubt with vaccine plugola, public shaming of the vaccine hesitant, and patriotic appeals. While allies in government and the media boost public acceptance with propaganda, impose censorship, and muzzle dissent, Gates's minions recruit trusted interlocutors, familiar community and medical leaders, to mollify the public that the experimental, unapproved, hastily tested zero-liability vaccine is safe and effective. The most effective interlocutor is Dr. Paul Farmer, Harvard's esteemed medical anthropologist and co-founder of Partners in Health, which provides medical care to impoverished regions around the globe. The simulation report states, Paul Farmer, the renowned global health expert, lauded the safety and efficacy of Corovax and underscored the dangers of SPARS. His only regret, he said, was that the vaccine could not yet be made available to everyone on the planet. The real-life farmer lists Gates as his organization's top funding partner. By springtime 2026, with the EUA vaccine rollout in full swing, public reservations about the vaccine are multiplying. The scenario blueprint predicts waves of severe neurological vaccine injuries soon appearing among children and adults. The CDC is meeting escalating skepticism toward its exaggerated predictions of coronavirus lethality. Official fatality numbers indicate that coronavirus mortalities are comparable to the seasonal flu. Quote, By May 2026, public interest in SPARS had begun to wane. In late April, the CDC had publicized an updated case fatality rate estimate suggesting that SPARS was only fatal in 0.6% of cases in the United States, end quote. Note, the 2020 COVID-19 case fatality rate was a mere 0.26%, according to CDC. The SPARS organizers warn that dropping death rates will spark public sentiment, widely expressed on social media, that SPARS was not as dangerous as initially thought. This perilous drop in popular fear jeopardizes the vaccine enterprise. The SPARS team turns to pandemic porn, constantly repeated death counts and case counts, to amplify the panic decibel so as to assure the success of their mass inoculation program. To overcome the public's dangerous complacency, the CDC and FDA, in concert with other government agencies and their social media experts, begin developing a new public health propaganda campaign 
create a core set of messages that could be shared by all public health and government agencies over the next several months, during which time the SPARS vaccine could be introduced. In a section headed Food for Thought, the scenario challenges participants to devise their own strategies for disabling common sense so as to achieve broad vaccine coverage. It reads, How might federal health authorities avoid people possibly seeing an expedited SPARS vaccine in development and testing process as somehow rushed and inherently flawed? How might federal health authorities respond to critics who propose that liability protection for SPARS vaccine manufacturers jeopardizes individual freedom and well-being? What are the potential consequences of health officials over-reassuring the public about the potential risks of a novel SPARS vaccine when long-term effects are not yet known? Even a casual read of the Foundation's planning document makes clear that Gates's preparation has little to do with public health and everything to do with limiting freedom and aggressively marketing vaccines. The planners tell their intended audience, public health providers and pandemic communicators, that public concerns over worrisome reactions and vaccine side effects can be drowned out by flooding the airwaves with good news about vaccine successes. The dismaying role of mainstream media in these exercises is to broadcast propaganda, impose censorship, and manufacture consent for oppressive policies. In their projections, the social planners project absolute confidence that news media and social media companies will fully cooperate with this coup d'etat. The simulation planners presciently assume their capacity to undermine the Fourth Estate in its role as the gladiatorial champion of free speech and democracy, and their ability to subvert the social media, which once promised to democratize the flow of information. Both mainstream and social media titans, it turns out, are predisposed to serve globalist elites. Gates and his cronies somehow intuited that these institutions would obligingly shape news coverage so as to manufacture obedience with compulsory vaccination and the dismemberment of the Constitution. It reads, In the following months, the WHO began developing an enhanced international vaccine program based on the expanded financial support of the United States and other countries. As time passed, and more people across the United States were vaccinated, claims of adverse side effects began to emerge. Given the positive reaction to the federal government's response and the fact that the majority of U.S. citizens willing to be vaccinated had already been immunized, the negative publicity surrounding adverse reactions had little effect on nationwide vaccination rates. Gates and his team assure pandemic planners that they will easily avoid culpability for the wave of long-term neurological injuries that they cause by their experimental vaccines. It goes on to say, While the federal government appeared to have appropriately addressed concerns around the acute side effects of Corovax, the long-term chronic effects of the vaccine were still largely unknown. Nearing the end of 2027, reports of new neurological symptoms began to emerge. After showing no adverse side effects for nearly a year, several vaccine recipients slowly began to experience symptoms such as blurry vision, headaches, and numbness in their extremities, 
Due to the small number of these cases, the significance of their association with Korovax was never determined. According to organizers, the purpose of Gates's simulation was to prepare public health communicators with a step-by-step -step strategic playbook for the upcoming pandemic. Eighteen months into the COVID-19 pandemic, it is difficult to peruse Gates's detailed 2018 planning document without feeling that we are all being played. Laying Pipe for Totalitarianism Following the success of the SPARS simulation, Gates projected a progressively darker and more martial tone and stepped up his declarations about the need for authoritarian coercion to cinch compliance with vaccination against the impending pandemic. On April 18, 2018, Gates delivered a speech at the Malaria Summit in London, warning that a deadly new disease could arise within a decade, taking the world by surprise, spreading globally, and killing tens of millions, hinting at the need for increased coordination between health officials and militaries, Gates reiterated, the world needs to prepare for pandemics in the same serious way it prepares for war. Gates's simulations invoke the concept of total war, meaning the mobilization of entire populations, the sacrifice of global economies, and the obliteration of democratic institutions and civil rights. Appreciating the challenges of imposing tyrannical controls in a democracy, Gates increasingly focused his efforts on enrolling critical allies in big tech and the military. On April 27, Gates told the Washington Post that he had warned President Trump about the increasing risk of a bioterrorism attack. Emphasizing his frequent contacts with the president and military advisors, he publicly disclosed having regular meetings with H.R. McMaster, Trump's former national security advisor. Gates was simultaneously building bridges with social media tycoons, including Amazon's Jeff Bezos, whose support he would need for his master plan. Like all totalitarian capers, Gates's gambit would require some book-burning, and Bezos would be there to oblige. Beginning in March 2020, Amazon would outright ban or throttle the delivery of entire categories of books and videos that questioned official orthodoxies, including the scientific basis for the lockdown that would multiply Bezos's wealth by tens of billions. In the finest Operation Mockingbird tradition, Bezos's Washington Post also pitched in including a shrill yet adoring propaganda tract under the headline, Bill Gates calls on U.S. to lead fight against a pandemic that could kill 33 million. That month, Gates announced a $12 million grand challenge in partnership with the family of Google's co-founder Larry Page to accelerate developing a universal flu vaccine. Google's parent company, Alphabet, was already heavily investing in vaccine manufacturing startups and had signed a $76 million partnership with GlaxoSmithKline. Apparently anticipating rich returns to big tech from the lockdown he would orchestrate, Gates was by then among the largest shareholders of Amazon, Google, Facebook, and, of course, 
Microsoft. The day after the Post story ran, a board member of the EcoHealth Alliance emailed zoologist and bioweapons expert Peter Daszak, Any connections with Bill Gates we could reactivate, given this perfect alignment in mission? Daszak responded, Regarding Gates and Google, we have good connections at both orgs. We'll definitely be reaching out to them again. Ever since the Ebola outbreak, Gates Foundation are now getting more into pandemic preparedness. Daszak, at that juncture, was acting as a conduit through which Tony Fauci, Robert Cadlick, the Pentagon, DARPA, and USAID, formerly a CIA cover and nowadays reporting to the National Security Council, were laundering grants to fund gain-of-function experiments, including at the Wuhan Institute of Virology Biosafety Lab. In 2018, the French government had warned U.S. government officials that the Wuhan lab, which the French helped build, was shoddily maintained and inadequately staffed and secured. For example, the French construction company Biomerieu, which built the lab, had neglected to properly complete the negative airflow system, a critical piece of infrastructure to prevent the escape of viruses deliberately enhanced to create pandemics. Dr. Fauci ignored the warning. When in May 2021, I emailed B.O. Mariu's ex-CEO, 2007 through 2011, Stefan Bonsell, to ask him if he knew that his company had violated its contract to provide a functional system, he did not reply. Bonsell, by that time, was CEO of Moderna and a partner of Bill Gates and Tony Fauci operating a company that would be the primary beneficiary of the lab leak, quickly making Bonsell's 9% stake worth over a billion dollars and counting. In March 2019, eight months before COVID-19 began circulating, Bonsell had reapplied for a patent for an mRNA technology for Moderna's new vaccine. The U.S. Patent Office had previously rejected his application but this time he approached the patent office with special urgency, expressing a concern for re-emergence or a deliberate release of the SARS coronavirus. Between germ game simulations, Gates continued his barnstorming tour, laying pipe for mass panic and authoritarian rule. At the annual Shattuck Lecture on April 27, 2018, in Boston, he warned, we can't predict when, but given the continual emergence of new pathogens, the increasing risk of a bioterror attack, and how connected our world is through air travel, there is a significant probability of a large and lethal modern-day pandemic occurring in our lifetimes. Biological weapons of mass destruction, he warned, had become easier to create in the lab. Gates went on to add that we are supporting efforts by others including the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, whose vaccine candidate, presumably Moderna, is expected to advance to human safety trials in about a year. Claydex, 2018 Then, on May 15, 2018, inside the darkened ballroom of Washington's Mandarin Oriental Hotel, Foreboding military music introduced 
another pandemic biowarfare preparation exercise hosted by the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, formerly the Hopkins Population Center, which Gates and NIH fund. The day-long event, dubbed Clade X, simulated the response to a fictitious bioengineered pathogen for which there is no vaccine. Hoping to reduce world population, an elite cult released their genetically engineered bug from a Zurich lab. The disease spreads first to Germany and Venezuela, and then to the United States, killing 100 million people globally as healthcare systems collapsed, panic spread, the U.S. stock market crashed. The simulation included a series of National Security Council convened meetings of 10 U.S. government leaders played by individuals prominent in the fields of national security or epidemic response. The exercise emphasized the need for militarized pandemic responses and explored strategies for controlling media and social media. It was a training drill to prepare political, bureaucratic, military, and intelligence officials to support the coup d'etat against American democracy and the U.S. Constitution. Participating were a kitchen cabinet of former top leaders of the FDA and CDC, as well as a former CIA general counsel. Playing themselves were ex-Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle and Indianapolis Congresswoman Susan Brooks. Daschle, a former Army intelligence officer who was among the targets of the 2001 anthrax-laced letters, became a pharmaceutical industry lobbyist by 2018. Susan Brooks, the so-called member from Eli Lilly, founded the Congressional Biodefense Caucus. She also introduced a successful bill in 2015, the Social Media Working Group Act of 2014, to establish a social media bureau within the Department of Homeland Security to facilitate censorship of social media during national emergencies. Another of her bills in 2015 sought to streamline implementation of coercive vaccination programs by the federal government during pandemics. Clade X live-streamed on Facebook before about 150 invited guests, including carefully selected representatives of major media. The simulation left his adulatory press quaking with fear. This mock pandemic killed 150 million people. Next time, it might not be a drill, Jeff Bezos' Washington Post headlined. The New York Post assured readers that the world is completely unprepared for the next pandemic. As the Post's reporter summarized, the simulation mixed details of past disasters with fictional elements to force government officials and experts to make the kinds of key decisions they could face in a real pandemic. It was a tense day. The exercise was inspired in part by the troubled response to the Ebola epidemic of 2014. Unlike Ebola, which spreads through direct contact and bodily fluids, this latest was a flu-like respiratory virus which would spread far more easily from person to person through coughing and sneezing. In the exercise, schools closed, the demand for surgical masks and respirators far exceeded supply and hospitals in the United States were quickly overwhelmed. Among the difficult questions, an entry ban on flights from other countries, who should get the vaccines first?
it's noteworthy that none of the Hopkins simulations contemplate the efficacy of repurposed medications to mitigate or end the pandemic. And none of them allow for soul-searching about the abolition of constitutional rights and the wholesale destruction of America's political and judicial systems in favor of a tyrannical medical and military junta. None of them recognize that there is no pandemic exception in the United States Constitution. Instead, they were too busy wargaming a high-level mutiny against American democracy. All of the Hopkins simulation stories end with the same affirmations, the advisability of militarized police state response and the dire need for broadly deployable mRNA vaccines upon which Gates and Fauci had already invested billions of dollars. Players underscored the need for the United States to go from bug to drug faster. And each simulation highlighted the so-called need to quarantine and isolate the healthy, censor criticism of the Gates-Fauci vaccines, and coerce the population into receiving vaccines rushed into distribution, all in opposition to logic, common sense, and previous public health practices. Hopkins Center Director Tom Inglesby explained that the event's immediate purpose was to provide experiential learning for new decision-makers in the Trump administration. Of course, the event's embedded press corps lauded Gates as the hero of the day, the beneficent billionaire whose genius alone would save us from the murderous contagion. An adulatory New Yorker article, The Terrifying Lessons of a Pandemic Simulation, giddily embraced the images of a nation at war, with Gates as the general atop his gleaming white steed. Philanthropist-in-chief Bill Gates drew on models developed by the Gates-funded Institute for Disease Modeling, IMHE, a venture founded by his former Microsoft colleague Nathan Mirvold, to warn that, at our current state of readiness, roughly 33 million people would die within the first six months of a global pandemic similar to the 1918 flu. Gates would deploy his IMHE minions in January 2020 to grotesquely exaggerate the COVID-19 predicted mortalities, 22 million dead in 12 months, to justify Tony Fauci's draconian lockdown. Where did the mock virus originate? In this scenario, someone has genetically modified a mostly harmless para-influenza virus to kill, recounted MIT Technology Review. The fictional culprit is a brighter dawn, a shadowy group promoting the philosophy that fewer people, a lot fewer, would be a good thing for planet Earth. Johns Hopkins pandemic specialist Eric Toner created the scenario after carrying out meticulous research to come up with a plausible threat using real virology and epidemiological models. The result was so realistic that the organizers chose not to present too many details. A clear strategic objective for Gates and Fauci was the repetition of the message that a global pandemic was inevitable that only mandatory vaccines could avert catastrophe, and that obliteration of civil rights will be required. Most astonishing was their capacity to mobilize the obliging global media to uncritically swallow and promote these propositions 
in complete contradiction of all previously accepted science and history. That same month, PBS's NewsHour, once revered as the most incorruptible of all U.S. television media, ran an adoring feature on Dr. Fauci, prominently touting the need for a universal flu vaccine in a two-part report on why another flu pandemic is likely just a matter of when. PBS cut to a tour of Fauci's vaccine research center with Dr. Barney Graham, co-inventor of Moderna's mRNA vaccine. In the next segment, the PBS reporter asked Dr. Fauci about a shot to protect against all known and unknown strains of the flu virus. Dr. Fauci replied, Several years ago, I wouldn't have been able to give you even an approximation of when that would be, because the science wasn't giving us the clues that we could actually do that. Now, with these exquisite techniques of structure-based vaccine design, I think we are in shooting distance. Dr. Fauci continued, We have got to be able to have something that, when a new pandemic virus emerges, we already have something on the shelf to do something about it, something that you could make, and it would be usable so that when you stockpile it, it really is a stockpile. The show was functionally an infomercial for Moderna and mRNA vaccines. PBS didn't mention that Dr. Fauci's NIAID had pumped massive funding into Moderna's vaccine, or that NIAID claimed patent rights and stood to profit handsomely from its approval. Nor did PBS acknowledge that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation had previously given PBS NewsHour millions of dollars, or that by 2019, Gates had also bet millions on Moderna's mRNA vaccine. Gates owns a substantial equity stake in the company. In September 2019, the Gates-funded Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security followed up on its Clade X event by issuing an 84-page report, Preparedness for a High-Impact Respiratory Pathogen Epidemic. The report focused on the only endpoint that seemed to really concern Gates, the Gates-Fauci mRNA vaccine project. If there was any doubt that pushing mRNA vaccine was the entire purpose of the exercise, the white paper cleared that up. The Claydex summary called for making the top priority of all government, media, and biosecurity players the coordinated drive for R&D aimed at rapid vaccine development for novel threats and distributed surge manufacturing. Nucleic acid, RNA, and DNA-based vaccines are widely seen as highly promising and potentially rapid vaccine development pathways, though they have not yet broken through with licensed products. Both Gates and Fauci had already invested such enormous financial resources in that technology. In this light, the simulations can be interpreted as marketing and public relations exercises designed to recruit and train political, military, media, and public health officials to advance their enterprise using censorship, propaganda, and state-sponsored violence, if necessary. The report concluded with a revealing warning about biosafety, 
particularly for countries that are funding research with the potential to result in accidents with pathogens that could initiate high-impact respiratory pandemics. The report warned that the possibility of deliberate release could substantially add to the extraordinary consequences that would follow a naturally occurring pandemic event with the same agent. Mass vaccination strategies should be developed and put in place to increase immediate access. Put simply, through the medium of this sponsored report, Gates is saying that we need a rapid mass vaccination strategy in place to anticipate the accidental or deliberate release of the kind of enhanced pathogens that his working partner, Dr. Fauci, was funding the development of in Wuhan under the pretext of vaccine research. Though Gates's simulation highlighted the need for masks and respirators, Gates, Dr. Fauci, and Cadlick ignored stockpiling these items, and the same for any antiviral drugs that might successfully treat sick people. Instead, they were laser-focused on next-gen vaccines, on compulsory administration to healthy uninfected populations, on censorship and other coercive devices, on constructing and controlling global health agencies, and on surveillance technologies. Global Preparedness Monitoring Board Later, in May 2018, with imprimatur from the WHO and the World Bank Group, Gates created a kind of permanent standing committee called the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, GPMB, including some of the most powerful global public health kingpins to institutionalize the lessons derived from all these scenario planning drills. The global committee would serve as the real-life authoritative collective for imposing rules during the upcoming pandemic. This so-called independent monitoring and accountability body's purpose was to validate the imposition of police state controls by global and local political leaders and technocrats, endorsing their efforts to take the kind of harsh actions that Gates' simulation modeled, subduing resistance, ruthlessly censoring dissent, isolating the healthy, collapsing economies, and compelling vaccination during a projected worldwide health crisis. GPMB's board includes a pantheon of technocrats whose cumulative global power to dictate global health policy is virtually irresistible. Anthony Fauci, Sir Jeremy Ferrer of Wellcome Trust, Chris Elias of BMGF, China's CDC director George Gao, Russian Health Minister Veronika Skvortsova, WHO's Health Director Michael Ryan, its former director Gro Harlem Brundtland, its former programming director Ilona Kickbush, and UNICEF's Henrietta Holzman Four, who is former director of USAID that used to be a reliable CIA front. In June 2019, about 20 weeks before the start of the COVID pandemic, Dr. Michael Ryan, executive director of the WHO's Health Emergencies Program, summarized the conclusions of GPMB's pandemic report, warning that we are entering a new phase of high-impact epidemics that would constitute a new normal where governments worldwide would strengthen control and restrict the mobility of citizens. Crimson Contagion 2019 
That August, not even ten weeks before the first COVID-19 infections were reported in Wuhan, a 2019 war game codenamed Crimson Contagion capped eight months of planning overseen by Robert Cadlick, who was by then President Trump's disaster response leader. Also involved in this virus war game scenario was Anthony Fauci, representing the NIH, Dr. Robert R. Redfield of the CDC, and HHS Secretary Alex Azar. The HHS Office of Preparedness and Response teamed with the top spooks at the National Security Council to lead the four-day nationwide functional exercise. So now Cadlick, who had for 20 years been writing scripts for using a pandemic to overthrow democracy and curtail constitutional rights, was in a perfect position to do just that. With this virus simulation, he included all the key players who would manage what was to become a de facto coup d'etat 60 days hence. While earlier simulations functioned as training drills for high-level political, military, press, intelligence agency, and regulatory commissars, the 2019 Crimson Contagion simulation functioned as a nationwide crusade to evangelize state-level health bureaucracies, municipal officials, hospital and law enforcement agencies across America with the messages developed in the preceding simulations. Under a veil of enforced secrecy, organizers staged the Crimson Contagion exercise nationwide at over 100 centers. Participation included 19 federal departments and agencies, 12 key states, 15 tribal nations and pueblos, 74 local health department and coalition regions, 87 hospitals, and over 100 healthcare and public health private sector partners. The simulation scenario envisioned a novel influenza pandemic originating in China labeled H7N9. As with COVID-19, air travelers rapidly spread the deadly respiratory illness across the globe. In this scenario, by the time U.S. health officials first identify the virus in Chicago, it is already galloping like the Grim Reaper across other metropolitan areas, forcing the HHS secretary to declare a national public health emergency. The WHO delays a month before declaring a pandemic. The multi-state, multi-regional exercise that took place just months before the real-world COVID-19 pandemic focused on critical infrastructure protection, economic impact, social distancing, scarce resource allocation, prioritization of vaccines, and other countermeasures, again, not including therapeutic medicines. The Crimson Contagion exercise achieved eerily accurate forecasting with numbers that precisely predicted the official casualty data for COVID-19. 110 million forecasted illnesses, 7.7 million predicted hospitalizations, and 568,000 deaths in the United States alone. The draft report, dated October 19, 2019, and marked not to be disclosed, didn't become public until the New York Times obtained a copy under the Freedom of Information Act and published a front-page article on March 19, 2020, 
eight days after the WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Only under pressure from another FOIA request did Cadillac's HHS Office of the Assistant Secretary of Preparedness and Response release the January 2020 after-action Crimson Contagion report the following September. The Times story contained this paragraph. Quote, The October 2019 report documents that officials at the Department of Homeland Security and Health and Human Services, and even at the White House's National Security Council, were aware of the potential for a respiratory virus outbreak originating in China to spread quickly to the United States and overwhelm the nation, end quote. The New York Times takeaway missed altogether the larger and more significant stories, that the Crimson Contagion's planners precisely predicted every element of the COVID-19 pandemic, from the shortage of masks to specific death numbers, months before COVID-19 was ever identified as a threat, and that their overarching countermeasure was the pre-planned demolition of the American Constitution by a scrupulously choreographed palace coup. The Crimson Contagion Draft report complains that existing federal funding sources were insufficient to combat a pandemic, and concluded predictably that government officials needed far more money and far more power. A significant topic of concern centered around the inadequacies of existing executive branch and statutory authorities to provide HHS with the requisite mechanisms to serve successfully as the lead federal agency in response to an influenza pandemic. The team noted that the group concluded they would soon need to move toward aggressive social distancing, even at the risk of severe disruption to the nation's economy and the daily lives of millions of Americans. Top Off, 2000-2007 In the course of researching this book, I discovered that, beginning in 2000, the security, military, police, and intelligence agencies have been secretly staging other mass simulations under the code name Topoff, of which the public is almost entirely unaware. Each of these functioned as training exercises for the lockstep imposition of global totalitarianism. Many of these drills have involved tens of thousands of local police, health officials, and emergency responders across the United States, Canada, Mexico, and Europe, as well as representatives from the FBI, the State Department, the intelligence agencies, and private corporations from chemical, petroleum, financial, telecom industries, and health sectors. Four top-off, top-official exercises between May 2000 and 2007 mobilized DOJ, FBI, and FEMA officials staging scenario planning around chemical and bioweapons attacks. The first of them, in May 2000, modeled chemical biological attacks in Denver, Colorado, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire, exploring logistics for quarantining an entire state, Colorado. The executive summary complains that stronger measures to protect the local Colorado citizens were not implemented, and warns that to survive such a disaster, the state must immediately take quick and decisive action 
to quarantine the population, including the enforcement of an unprecedented no-contact-out-of-your-home policy that became the hallmark of the response to COVID-19 20 years later. The Department of Homeland Security sponsored Top Off 2 in May 2003, including more than 8,000 participants in Seattle and Chicago, as well as significant participation by the Canadian government. Top Off 3 in April 2005 simulated biological and chemical attacks in New Jersey and Connecticut, involving more than 20,000 participants from over 250 federal, state, and local agencies private businesses, volunteer groups, and international organizations. Canada and the UK coordinated simultaneous exercises. Top Off 4, running from October 15 to October 24, 2007, involved more than 23,000 participants from government and the private sector, simulating attacks in Guam, Portland, and Phoenix. In Washington, D.C., the State Department activated an exercise task force and participated in high-level meetings with other department and agency decision-makers, including American embassies in Canberra, Ottawa, and London. These are brainwashing exercises, says former CIA officer and whistleblower Kevin Shipp. Getting all of these thousands of public health and law enforcement officials to participate in blowing up the U.S. Bill of Rights in these exercises, you basically have obtained their prior sign-off on torpedoing the Constitution to overthrow its democracy. They know that none of these participants are going to suddenly start soul-searching when the real thing happens. The CIA has spent decades studying exactly how to control large populations using these sorts of techniques. Ship adds, we are all subjects now being manipulated in a vast population-wide Milgram experiment, with Dr. Fauci playing the doctor in the white lab coat, instructing us to ignore our virtues and our conscience and obliterate the Constitution. Event 201 October 2019. Under Gates's direction in mid-October 2019, only two months after Crimson Contagion and three weeks after U.S. intelligence agencies believe that COVID-19 had begun circulating in Wuhan, the cabal of potentates and institutions that compose the biosecurity cartel began preparing decision-makers for the mass eviction of informed critics of the vaccine industry from social media. That month, Gates personally organized yet another training and signaling exercise for government biosecurity functionaries. This war game consisted of four tabletop simulations of a worldwide coronavirus pandemic. Participants included a group of high-ranking kahunas from the World Bank, the World Economic Forum, Bloomberg Johns Hopkins University Population Center, the CDC, various media powerhouses, the Chinese government, a former CIA NSA director, vaccine maker Johnson & Johnson, the globe's largest pharmaceutical company, finance and biosecurity industry chieftains, and the president of Edelman, the world's leading corporate PR firm. Conspiracy-minded critics dubbed this cabal the Deep State. The World Economic Forum director Klaus Schwab has christened their agenda 
the Great Reset. Event 201 was a signaling exercise, but it was also, as we shall see, a training run for a government in waiting. Its principles would quickly move into key positions to run pandemic response a few months later. At Gates's direction, the participants role-played members of a pandemic control council, wargaming a contagion that serves as pretext for this insurgency against American democracy. They drilled a retinue of psychological warfare techniques for controlling official narratives, silencing dissent, forcibly masking large populations, and leveraging the pandemic to promote mandatory mass vaccinations. Needless to say, there was little talk of building or fortifying immune systems, existing off-the-shelf remedies, or off-patent therapeutic drugs and vitamins. Instead, there was abundant palaver about expanding government's authoritarian powers, imposing draconian restrictions, curtailing traditional civil rights, which might include of rights of assembly, free speech, private property, jury trials, due process, and religious worship, as well as promoting and coercing the uptake of new, patentable antiviral drugs and vaccines. The participants walked through imaginary global coronavirus contagion scenarios that focused on fear-mongering, blanket censorship, mass propaganda, and police-state strategies culminating in compulsory max vaccination. As with the Clade X simulation, the most trusted pharma-friendly media attended. Forbes and Bloomberg participated in the exercise, which focused on wargaming the medical cartel's censorship initiative. The Bloomberg Foundation is a major funder of the Johns Hopkins Center. Oddly, Gates later claimed that this simulation didn't occur. On April 12, 2020, Gates told BBC, Now here we are. We didn't simulate this. We didn't practice. So both the health policies and economic policies, we find ourselves in uncharted territory. Unfortunately for that whopper, the videos of the event are still available across the Internet. They show that Gates and team did indeed simulate health and economic policies. It's hard to swallow that Gates had forgotten. Organizers build Event 201 as a vehicle for delineating areas where public-private partnerships will be necessary during the response to a severe pandemic in order to diminish large-scale economic and societal consequences. They reminded attendees that experts agree that it is only a matter of time before one of these epidemics becomes global. Event 201 was as close as one could get to a real-time simulation. It was a meeting of a hypothetical pandemic emergency board in the same week that COVID-19 was already claiming its first victims in Wuhan. We're not sure how big this could get, but there's no end in sight, warns one hypothetical physician in an opening briefing. Gates's simulated coronavirus epidemic was far worse than the authentic COVID-19 outbreak that would hit America just weeks later. The simulated version caused 65 million deaths at the 18-month endpoint and global economic collapse lasting up to a decade. Compared to the Gates simulation, therefore, the actual COVID-19 crisis is a bit of a dud. 
Public health officials claim two and a half million deaths attributed to COVID globally over 13 months. The death counts from COVID in our real-life COVID-19 predicament are highly inflated and questionable. Further, the death of two and a half million must be put in the context of a global population of 7.8 billion, with around 59 million deaths expected annually in any event. Event 201's predictions of decade-long economic collapse will probably prove more accurate, but only because of the draconian lockdown promoted by both Gates and Dr. Fauci. The theme of Event 201 was that such a crisis would prove an opportunity to promote new vaccines and tighten information and behavioral controls through propaganda, censorship, and surveillance. Gates's script anticipates vast anti-vaccine resistance triggered by mandates and fanned by Internet posts. Muslin Talk of Lab Generation Five months before WHO declared a global pandemic, at a time when 99.999% of Americans had never heard the phrase gain of function, key government officials were already planning strategies for suppressing public discussion of the potential that a coronavirus might have been deliberately manipulated to enhance its pathogenicity and transmissibility in humans. One of their central fixations was how to silence rumors that the coronavirus was laboratory-generated. Event 201's fourth simulation anticipated the manipulation and control of public opinion and muzzling any colloquy about artificially enhanced pathogens. Everyone voiced their urgent concerns that authorities must instantly squelch and discredit any speculation that someone deliberately or accidentally released a lab-made bug. This segment is most revealing for its uncannily accurate prediction of democracy's current crisis. The fundamental assumption of all participants was that censorship and propaganda are legitimate exercises of federal power. The participants discussed mechanisms for stamping out disinformation and misinformation, by flooding the media with propaganda, good information, imposing penalties for spreading falsehoods, and discrediting dissent, the anti-vaccination movement. What follows are thumbnail portraits of some of the participants in this aspect of the operation, along with accounts of their specific comments and actions. George Gao, the director of the Chinese Center for Disease Control, CCDC, worried about how to suppress the inevitable rumors that the virus is laboratory-generated. People believe this is a man-made and that some pharmaceutical company made the virus. Two months after speaking those words, Gao himself would lead the Chinese effort to tamp down rumors of lab creation. Gao also orchestrated the Chinese government drive to vaccinate a billion Chinese citizens. Dr. Tara Kirk Sell a senior scholar at Bloomberg School of Health's Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, worried that pharmaceutical companies are being accused of introducing the virus so they can make money on drugs and vaccines. We have seen public faith in their products plummet. She notes with alarm that unrest due to false rumors and divisive messaging is rising 
and is exacerbating spread of the disease as levels of trust fall and people stop cooperating with response efforts. This is a massive problem, one that threatens governments and trusted institutions. Sell reminds her Confederates that we know that social media is now the primary way that many people get their news, so interruptions to these platforms could curb the spread of misinformation. There are many ways, Dr. Sell advises, for government and industry allies to accomplish this objective. Some governments have taken control of national access to the Internet. Others are censoring websites and social media content. And a small number have shut down Internet access completely to prevent the spread of misinformation. Penalties have been put in place for spreading harmful falsehoods, including arrests. Like many other Event 201 collaborators, Cell moved into government service soon after declaration of the pandemic. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Cell has worked as a kind of United States Minister of Truth, coordinating U.S. government and WHO efforts to quash, to dissent and discredit, vilify and gaslight dissenters. She calls her occupation by the Orwellian term infodemiology, which she describes as tracking spread of misinformation, dissenting opinions, and curtailing its spread through risk communication and censorship. Jane Halton served Australia as both health and finance ministers and is a board member of Australia's ANZ Bank. ANZ funds Australia's large and influential vaccine sector. Halton is one of the authors of Australia's oppressive no-jab-no-pay policy. She was the former president of WHO's World Health Assembly. Today, she is chair of Gates's Global Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness, CEPI, which serves the role of diverting philanthropic and government financing toward the development of pandemic vaccines by profit-making pharmaceutical companies. She assured her fellow Event 201 participants that, behind the scenes, the Gates Foundation was already creating algorithms to sift through information on these social media platforms to protect the public from dangerous thoughts and information. In March of 2020, Halton joined the executive board of the Australian National COVID-19 Coordination Commission, which imposed the world's most draconian lockdown and the most dramatic abridgments of civil rights in that nation's history. Chen Huang, an Apple research scientist, Google scholar, and the world's leading expert on tracking and tracing and facial recognition technology, role-plays the newscaster reporting on government countermeasures. He blames riots on anti-vaccine activists and, approvingly, predicts that Twitter and Facebook will cooperate in identifying and deleting a disturbing number of accounts dedicated to spreading this information about the outbreak and to implement Internet shutdowns to quell panic. Matthew Harrington Director of Global Operations and Digital Communications, Edelman, the world's largest public relations firm, which represents Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, and Microsoft, agrees that social media must fall in line to promote government policy. I also think we're at a moment where the social media platforms have to step forward and recognize the moment to assert that they're a technology platform 
and not a broadcaster is over. They, in fact, have to be a participant in broadcasting accurate information and partnering with the scientific and health communities to counterweight, if not flood the zone, of accurate information. Because to try to put the genie back in the bottle of the misinformation and disinformation is not possible. Stephen Redd, the Admiral of the United States Public Health Service and Assistant Surgeon General, has the sinister notion that government should mine social media data to identify and collect data on Americans with negative beliefs. I think with the social media platforms, there's an opportunity to understand who it is that's susceptible to misinformation. So I think there's an opportunity to collect data from that communication mechanism. A couple of months after expressing these ideas, Red assumed his new post, Deputy Director of CDC, managing the COVID countermeasures. Adrian Thomas, VP Global Strategy, Programs and Public Health for Johnson & Johnson, the world's largest pharmaceutical company, announced some important news to share from our member companies, Pharma. We are doing clinical trials in new antiretrovirals and, in fact, in vaccines. He recommends a strategy to address the problems that will inevitably badger these companies when rumors were actually spreading that their shoddily tested products are causing deaths and so patients are not taking them anymore. He suggests, maybe we're in the mistake of reporting and counting all the fatalities and infections. This worry may explain why federal regulators chose to deliberately maintain a dysfunctional surveillance system designed to hide more than 99% of vaccine injuries. Thomas has manned Johnson & Johnson's pandemic response and vaccine development program since March 2021. Former CIA Deputy Director Avril Haines unveiled a strategy to flood the zone with propaganda from trusted sources, including influential community leaders as well as health workers. She warns about false information that is starting to actually hamper our ability to address the pandemic, then we need to be able to respond quickly to it. On April 11, 2021, President Biden appointed Haynes as Director of National Intelligence, now the highest official in charge of pandemic response. Matthew Harrington, Edelman CEO, observes that the Internet which once promised to decentralize and democratize information, now needs to be centralized. I think, just to build a little bit on what Avril said is, I think as in previous conversations where we've talked about centralization around management of information or public health needs, there needs to be a centralized response around the communications approach that then is cascaded to informed advocates represented in the NGO communities the medical professionals, etc. Edelman boasts that tech is its biggest client, followed closely by pharma. Microsoft is Edelman's most important account. Dr. Tom Inglesby is director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. He is an advisor to NIH, the Pentagon, and Homeland Security. Like many other Event 201 participants, Inglesby migrated immediately into real-life management of the crisis. Three months later, he would move over to HHS as senior advisor of the COVID-19 response. 
Inglesby agrees that greater centralized control is needed. When asked, you mean centralized international? Matthew Harrington, Edelman, replies that information access should be centralized on an international basis because I think there needs to be a central repository of data facts and key messages. Hosti Taggi, media advisor, sums up, The anti-vaccine movement was very strong, and this is something specifically through social media that has spread. So as we do the research to come up with the right vaccines to help prevent the continuation of this, how do we get the right information out there? How do we communicate the right information to ensure that the public has trust in these vaccines that we're creating? Kevin McAleese, a communications officer for Gates-funded agricultural projects, observes that, to me, it is clear countries need to make strong efforts to manage both mis- and disinformation. We know social media companies are working around the clock to combat these disinflation campaigns. The task of identifying every bad actor is immense. This is a huge problem that's going to keep us from ending the pandemic and might even lead to the fall of governments, as we saw in the Arab Spring. If the solution means controlling and reducing access to information, I think it's the right choice. Dr. Tom Inglesby, Johns Hopkins, concurs, asking if, in this case, do you think governments are at the point where they need to require social media companies to operate in a certain way? Lavin Theroux, Singapore's finance minister, suggests that the government might make examples by arresting dissidents with governments on enforcement actions against fake news. Some of us, this new regulations are come in place about how we deal with fake news. Maybe this is a time for us to showcase some cases where we are able to bring forward some bad actors and leave it before the courts to decide whether they have actually spread some fake news. Sophia Borges, head of the New York office of the UN, spoke of putting out positive stories about people who'd beaten the disease and having a centralized source of information and a world body that could garner the respect of everyone. I think the WHO in this instance might be that source of information. Adrian Thomas added, It's important to think about what atypical players in the private sector can we bring to bear in this. Bringing multinational pharmaceutical companies to talk about why their products are safe could be seen as non-credible. Gates's Event 201 Global Pandemic War Game quickly demonstrated that it was reaching and indoctrinating its intended audiences, the globe's top-level decision-makers. A week after Event 201, presidential aspirant Joe Biden read a Washington Post article about the follow-up to the Event 201 report, co-authored by the Hopkins Center for Health Security. According to a newly invented Global Health Security Index assessing 195 countries, no country, the United States included, is fully prepared to respond to a deliberate or accidental threat with the potential to wipe out humanity. Biden tweeted a response on October 25, 2019. We are not prepared for a pandemic. We need leadership that focuses on real threats and mobilizes the world to stop outbreaks before they reach our shores. At the end of November 2019, Rob Butler, 
the head of WHO, Europe's Vaccine Preventable Diseases and Immunization Program from 2014 to 2018, told the European Scientific Conference on Applied Infectious Disease Epidemiology that vaccine hesitancy must be tackled and immunization is a best buy. The Triumph of the Military Intelligence Complex, Intelligence Agencies, and COVID-19 In November 2020, the British spy agency MI6 announced that its spooks would be surveilling foreigners all over the world, presumably including Americans who questioned official orthodoxies about COVID-19 vaccines, declaring the launch of an offensive cyber operation to disrupt anti-vaccine propaganda. The foreign branch hinted that it would henceforth target individuals who asked awkward or impudent questions about vaccines or questioned official COVID proclamations or countermeasures. The agency promised to deploy the same arsenal of monitoring and harassment weaponry and dirty tricks that it formerly reserved for terrorists. According to the Times, the spy agency is using a toolkit developed to tackle disinformation and recruitment peddled by Islamic State. A government source assured the paper they weren't kidding around. GCHQ has been told to take out anti-vacciners online and on social media. There are ways they have used to monitor and disrupt terrorist propaganda. Federal law forbids U.S. spy agencies from spying on or surveilling U.S. citizens, but the Western intelligence bureaucracies work in collaboration with one another, and the CIA often deploys European, Israeli, and Canadian agencies as surrogates to skirt U.S. laws. In August 2020, after I appeared as a keynote speaker before an estimated crowd of 1.2 million democracy and civil rights advocates from every European nation protesting COVID restrictions at a peace and justice rally in Berlin, Germany's domestic intelligence agency announced that it would begin monitoring the top leaders of the group that invited me. The spy agency accused COVID protesters of trying to permanently undermine trust in state institutions and their representatives, according to the news agency AFP. Now the definition of terror is so broad, says former CIA official Kevin Shipp, that any mention of COVID vaccines comes under their purview. These were the first explicit acknowledgments of the pervasive involvement by Western intelligence agencies in the vaccine enterprise that the global press has long overlooked. As two decades of germ game simulations foreshadowed, U.S. and foreign clandestine agencies have a secretive but dominating presence in the COVID-19 pandemic response. Intelligence community alumni and active officers occupy key positions in the international agencies that promote global vaccinations. For example, President Biden's director of USAID is former WHO Ambassador Samantha Power. Power is an imperialist war hawk who, as President Obama's national security advisor, persuaded him to intervene militarily in Libya. She has declared that her primary goal at USAID is to restore U.S. prestige by getting American-made vaccines into arms around the world. UNICEF's director, Anthony Lake, 
was President Bill Clinton's national security advisor and his nominee to be CIA director until corruption charges derailed his appointment. In January 2020, UNICEF telegraphed its brave new embrace of authoritarianism by cheerleading the Maldives legislature's passage of a bill making it a criminal offense for parents to decline any government-recommended vaccine for their children. UNICEF's unsheathed enthusiasm makes clear that the organization regards the Maldives' innovation as a pilot program for humanity. GlaxoSmithKline's spinoff, The Wellcome Trust, has played a central role in the marriage of Big Pharma to the Western spy agencies. From 2015 until October 2020, the chair of Wellcome Trust, the UK version of the Gates Foundation, was the former director general of MI5, Dame Eliza Manningham Buller, a 35-year counterespionage veteran who also functioned as official liaison between British and U.S. intelligence agencies. Anthony Fauci's emails reveal that Welcome Trust Director Sir Jeremy Ferrer worked directly with Dr. Fauci to orchestrate the cover-up of the Wuhan lab leak evidence, assigning a staff of five Welcome Trust operatives to manage the fraud. Dame Manningham Buller has served as chair of the Imperial College London since 2011. Anthony Fauci and Western health officials widely cited the Imperial College's inaccurate COVID-19 fatality projections, ginned up by the Welcome Trust's notorious epidemiologist Neil Ferguson, to justify the draconian global lockdowns. Ferguson's guileful projections overestimated fatality rates by more than an order of magnitude. He did the same with mad cow disease and other diseases du jour. MI6 spy Christopher Steele is a leader of the British organization Independent Sage, a sketchy yet highly influential collective of social scientists, psychologists, and professional propagandists who use the news media to relentlessly pressure the UK government any time it hesitates to deploy the flinty authoritarianism needed to achieve zero COVID. Steele is only one of many former intelligence officers who cheerlead draconian responses to COVID and applaud the onset of totalitarianism. One of the early promoters of the marginalization, demonization, and officially sanctioned abuse of vaccine-hesitant parents is Juliet Kayam, the former Assistant Secretary for Homeland Security under President Obama and former member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the National Committee on Terrorism, Kayam was forced out of her high-level job at the Washington Post when critics leaked her involvement with the Israeli spyware company that makes the software system used to track and murder Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. As early as April 2019, she was editorializing for the Washington Post that parents who declined measles vaccines for their children should face isolation, fines, arrests, and be treated to the same sanctions that government uses against terrorists and sex offenders. As early as 1977, Watergate journalist Carl Bernstein documented the CIA's control over 400 leading American journalists and institutions, including the New York Times and Time magazine. 
The CIA's long and pervasive domination of the Washington Post via Project Mockingbird, beginning with its owners Catherine and Phil Graham and leading editors and reporters, is well documented. There is little evidence that its new owner, Jeff Bezos, has pruned away these corrupting influences. The Post and The Times have been the leading media cheerleaders for draconian pandemic response. On September 5th, Max Blumenthal, son of frequent Washington Post contributor Sidney Blumenthal, exposed The Post for publishing a phony doctor-on-the-street interview in which a supposedly typical D.C. physician called for extrajudicial murder of the vaccine-hesitant parents through medical neglect. Blumenthal pointed out that the physician was actually the vice president of technical staff at InQtel. The CIA and other intelligence agencies aggressively recruit scientists like Jeremy Ferrer, whose research involves postings in foreign countries. Additionally, it uses vaccination drives as a cover for broader strategic actions. Between 2011 and 2014, for example, the CIA used the WHO's Global Eradication Program to conduct fake polio and hepatitis B vaccine programs in Pakistan as a way to surreptitiously collect DNA from individuals in its efforts to track down Osama bin Laden. These are only a few of the myriad examples of the closely kept involvements by spy agencies in treating vaccination as a foreign policy tool and as an instrument of fear, suppression, and control independent of any genuine health concerns. In July 2021, one year and four months into the misery of the global lockdown, the FAA had to divert air traffic over a section of the country stretching from the West Coast to Michigan to make room for the fleets of private jets converging on Sun Valley, Idaho, for the 38th annual meeting of the world's most exclusive conclave, sometimes called the Summer Camp for Billionaires, or Mogulfest. The 2021 meeting included Bill Gates, Apple CEO Tim Cook, Mark Zuckerberg, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, Mike Bloomberg, Google founders Larry Price and Sergey Brin, Warren Buffett, Netflix CEO Reed Hastings, Disney chair Robert Iger, Viacom CBS chair Sherry Redstone, and one of the lockdown's most influential propagandists, Anderson Cooper, who has acknowledged that he responded to a CIA recruitment poster while attending Yale and worked an indeterminate number of summers thereafter in Langley. All the discussions at the event were, as usual, closely guarded, but participants acknowledged conversing about cryptocurrencies and artificial intelligence. This year, the robber barons hosted, as their guest of honor, CIA Director William Joseph Burns, and by all reports, the mood among the titans was bullish. By that time, U.S. billionaires were well on their way to increasing their collective wealth by $3.8 trillion in a single year, while obliterating the American middle class, which permanently lost about the same amount. These tech and media magnates, who had magnified their billions from the lockdown, were the same men who had used their media and social media platforms to censor complaints about the lockdown, even as it filled their coffers past the bursting point. 
each of these fat cats had helped grease the skids for the calamitous collapse of America's exemplary constitutional democracy. The Bill of Rights was by then indefinitely suspended. The participants of that event had privatized the public square and then obstructed the free flow of information and open debate, the oxygen and sunlight of democracy. Their censorship allowed their allies in the technocracy to effect the most extraordinary curtailment of American constitutional rights in history, closing churches across the country, shuttering a million businesses without due process or just compensation, suspending jury trials for corporate malefactors, passing regulations without constitutionally guaranteed transparency, public hearings, or comment, violating privacy through warrantless searches, and track-and-trace surveillance and abolishing the rights of assembly and association. After 20 years of modeling exercises, the CIA, working with medical technocrats like Anthony Fauci and billionaire Internet tycoons, had pulled off the ultimate coup d'etat. Some 250 years after America's historic revolt against entrenched oligarchy and authoritarian rule, the American experiment with self-government was over. The oligarchy was restored, and these gentlemen and their spymasters had equipped the rising technocracy with new tools of control unimaginable to King George or to any other tyrant in history. COVID-19, a military project. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Dwight Eisenhower, 1961 With all the preparations for a coordinated military response, with deep involvement from intelligence agencies, it should come as no surprise that the government's COVID-19 response quickly emerged as a military project. On September 28, 2020, science journalist Nicholas Florco published in STAT a leaked organizational schematic exposing the $10 billion Operation Warp Speed project as a highly structured Defense Department campaign with vast military involvement. The Byzantine flowchart shows four generals and 60 other military officials commanding Operation Warp Speed, badly outnumbering civilian health technocrats from HHS, who represented a mere 29 of the roughly 90 leaders on the chart. HHS's Deputy Chief of Staff for Policy, Paul Mengo, told STAT that the Department of Defense was deeply enmeshed in every aspect of the project, including creating more than two dozen vaccine pop-up manufacturing plants, airlifting in equipment and raw materials from across the globe, and erecting cybersecurity and physical security operations 
to ensure an eventual vaccine is guarded very closely from state actors who don't want us to be successful in this. This paranoid addendum seems like a pretextual effort to link vaccine-hesitant Americans to sinister foreign governments, thereby justifying a military and intelligence agency response. It is, in short, a conspiracy theory, albeit an official one. Mango told Stat that warp speed planning and debriefing occurs in protected rooms used to discuss classified information. A senior federal health official told Stat he was struck by the sight of soldiers in military uniforms ambling about HHS's headquarters in downtown Washington, including over 100 soldiers in the HHS corridors wearing Desert Storm fatigues. Health officials complained to Stat that they found themselves marginalized as warp speed devolved into a partnership between the military and the pharmaceutical industry, presided over by Robert Cadlick, who, according to Mango, personally signed off on every business agreement made by HHS for Operation Warp Speed. Warp Speed has secret deals with six major drug companies developing COVID-19 vaccines. The operation's chief advisor is Monsef Slawi, a former GlaxoSmithKline official who prior to the pandemic served as chairman of Moderna, the Fauci-Cadillac-Gates collaboration that would be Warp Speed's primary beneficiary. By characterizing his post as an outside contractor, Slawi, who holds roughly $10 million in GSK stock, dodged the application of federal ethics rules. Slawi has since promised to donate any increase in the value of his stock. The first person to be fired should be Dr. Slawi, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat Massachusetts, responded at a hearing. The American people deserve to know that COVID-19 vaccine decisions are based on science and not on personal greed. Dr. Fauci had direct hands-on involvement with Warp Speed through his employee Larry Corey, who described himself as an ex-officio member of the Warp Speed governance. Corey runs Dr. Fauci's COVID-19 Prevention Network, which transforms HIV clinical trial networks into Phase three COVID-19 clinical trials. Dr. Fauci was undaunted by the military takeover of U.S. health policy, applauding the operation as a talent show. Dr. Fauci told STAT he was untroubled by the dearth of public health experience among Warp Speed's Pentagon leadership. If you go through the organizational boxes of Operation Warp Speed, they're very, very impressive. Tom Inglesby also lauded the military involvement. There is deep knowledge of science and on how to manage complex government operations, said Inglesby. It's clearly operating in a challenging pandemic and political environment, and we won't know if we have a safe and effective vaccine until the trials are finished. But it's a highly competent group of people working to make it happen. HHS Secretary Alex Azar, a former pharma CEO and lobbyist, and Defense Secretary Mark Esper share top billing as the organizational chairs. Slowy, the project's formal civilian leader, and General Gustav Perna serve as Operation Warp Speed's CEO. Immediately beneath Perna and Slowy are Lieutenant General retired Paul Ostrowski, a former Special Forces soldier 
who manages distribution of an eventual vaccine, and Matt Hepburn, who specializes in futuristic warfare projects for the Pentagon, including a program to implant high-tech sensors into soldiers to detect illnesses and for other purposes. This should be a medical and not be a military operation, Holocaust survivor and medical ethics advocate Vera Sharov told me. It's a public health problem. Why are the military and the CIA so heavily involved? Why is everything a secret? Why can't we know the ingredients of these products which the taxpayers financed? Why are all their emails redacted? Why can't we see the contracts with vaccine manufacturers? Why are we mandating a treatment with an experimental technology with minimal testing? Since COVID-19 harms fewer than 1%, what is the justification for putting 100% of the population at risk? We need to recognize that this is a vast human experiment on all of mankind with an unproven technology conducted by spies and generals primarily trained to kill and not to save lives. What could possibly go wrong? Please go to the Children's Health Defense website for the acknowledgments and notes by chapter, updates to data, and new information that becomes available on any of the subject matter covered in this audiobook. Afterward What I have described in the preceding chapters can seem overwhelming and dispiriting. The forced vaccine campaign and other cruel actions by Dr. Fauci and his acolytes might seem too big to fail, but that is up to the citizens of our country. We can bow down and comply, take the jabs, wear the face coverings, show our digital passports on demand, submit to the tests, and salute our minders in the biosurveillance state or we can say no. We have a choice, and it is not too late. COVID-19 is not the problem. It is a problem, one largely solvable with early treatments that are safe, effective, and inexpensive. The problem is endemic corruption in the medical-industrial complex, currently supported at every turn by mass media companies. This cartel's coup d'etat has already siphoned billions from taxpayers, already vacuumed up trillions from the global middle class, and created the excuse for massive propaganda, censorship, and control worldwide. Along with its captured regulators, this cartel has ushered in the global war on freedom and democracy. Playwright and essayist C.J. Hopkins describes the moment all too well. Quote, there is nothing subtle about this process. Decommissioning one reality and replacing it with another is a brutal business. Societies grow accustomed to their realities. We do not surrender them willingly or easily. Normally, what's required to get us to do so is a crisis, a war, a state of emergency, or, you know, a deadly global pandemic. During the changeover from the old reality to the new reality, the society is torn apart. The old reality is being disassembled, and the new one has not yet taken its place. It feels like madness, and in a way, it is. 
For a time, the society is split in two as the two realities battle it out for dominance. Reality being what it is, i.e. monolithic, this is a fight to the death. In the end, only one reality can prevail. This is the crucial period for the totalitarian movement. It needs to negate the old reality in order to implement the new one, and it cannot do that with reason and facts, so it has to do it with fear and brute force. It needs to terrorize the majority of society into a state of mindless mass hysteria that can be turned against those resisting the new reality. It is not a matter of persuading or convincing people to accept the new reality. It's more like how you drive a herd of cattle. You scare them enough to get them moving, then you steer them wherever you want them to go. The cattle do not know or understand where they are going. They are simply reacting to a physical stimulus. Facts and reason have nothing to do with it. End quote. As we consider the unprecedented bludgeoning of our Constitution over the past two years, it's worth pausing to remember the smallpox epidemic that stalled Washington's army during the Revolution and the malaria contagion that culled the Army of Virginia. Though both alerted the framers to the deadly and disruptive potential of infectious disease epidemics, the framers nevertheless opted to include no pandemic exception to the United States Constitution. Yet today, the pandemic is being used to create a string of new exceptions to our Constitution. We are given just one rationale to explain everything that is happening. COVID. For just a brief moment, let's look away from the ostensible reason things are happening and focus instead on what is happening. Those controlling the levers of power vilify dissenters and punish every attempt at questioning, skepticism, and debate. Like all tyrants in history, they ban books, silence artists, condemn writers, poets, and intellectuals who question the new orthodoxies. They have outlawed gatherings and forced citizens to wear masks that instill fear and divide communities, and atomized any sense of solidarity by preventing the most subtle, an eloquent nonverbal communication for which God and evolution gave humans 42 facial muscles. Predictably, the pandemic became a pretense for expanded tyranny across the globe, making changes that have nothing to do with a virus. Hungary clamped down on free speech and banned public depictions of homosexuality. China shuttered Hong Kong's last pro-democracy newspaper, and jailed its executives, editors, and journalists. In Belarus, President Lukashenko subdued protests with mass arrests and even hijacked a passenger plane to arrest a dissident journalist. Cambodia abolished due process and arrested political opponents. Poland's government abolished rights for women and gays and effectively banned abortion. India's prime minister arrested journalists and ordered Twitter to remove critical posts. Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, used the pandemic as another pretext for jailing powerful opponents and banning mass gatherings. And democracies were not much different. France required its citizens to show a signed declaration to travel more than one kilometer from home. Australia was more liberal, allowing citizens to venture up to five kilometers from home. But then again, 
Australia also built new detention centers. Britain banned its citizens from traveling abroad. Many similar things happened in the United States, including New York's Senate passing a law to allow for the forcible and indefinite detention of residents deemed to be a threat to public health. But for America, freedom of speech has been the biggest casualty of the emerging tyranny. The now popular term misinformation has come to mean any expression that departs from official orthodoxies. Social media and news media companies serve as stenographer and defender of any position pronounced by government. The intentional failure of journalistic inquiry, curiosity, and investigation, the failure to probe, to ask tough questions or any questions of those in power, has enabled the madness and the sadness of 2020 and 2021. There is a web of motives at work, but I'll cite a simple one. Big pharmaceutical companies are the biggest advertisers on news and television outlets. Their $9.6 billion annual advertising budget buys more than commercials. It buys obeisance. In 2014, network president Roger Ailes told me he would fire any of his news show hosts who allowed me to talk about vaccine safety on air. Our news division, he explained, gets up to 70% of ad revenues from pharma in non-election years. I know the role of the news media is not news to you, so I'll cite just one example. Vaccine mandates are ostensibly based upon the idea that vaccines will prevent transmission of COVID-19. If they don't prevent transmission, if both the vaccinated and unvaccinated can spread the virus, then there is no relevant difference between the two groups other than that one group is not complying with government commands. Forcing an entire population to accept an arbitrary and risky medical intervention is the most intrusive and demeaning action ever imposed by the United States government and perhaps any government. And it is based upon a lie. The director of the CDC, Dr. Fauci, and the WHO have all had to reluctantly acknowledge that the vaccines cannot stop transmission. When Israel's director of public health addressed the FDA advisory panel, she left no doubt about the vaccine's inability to stop transmission of the virus or stop sickness or stop death. Describing Israel's situation as of September 17, 2021, she said, 60% of the people in severe and critical condition were, um, were immunized doubly immunized, fully vaccinated. 45% of the people who died in this fourth wave were doubly vaccinated. Even so, three weeks later on October 7th, just days before this book went to press, the President of the United States announced that he was ensuring healthcare workers are vaccinated because if you seek care at a healthcare facility, you should have the certainty that the people providing the care are protected from COVID and cannot spread it to you. The president just told Americans that being vaccinated provides certainty that vaccinated people are protected from COVID and cannot pass it to you. Not one question was posed to the president about this stunning disconnect, about the obvious untruth, and that speech gives us a stark example of what's going on. A televised image of an unchallenged leader mouthing untrue pronouncements 
to mislead and control the population. That is the world of George Orwell's sadly prophetic novel, 1984. It is a hopeful sign that halfway into 2021, Orwell's 70-year-old book suddenly became a top-20 bestseller in the United States. Apparently, more people are aware of what's going on than the powerful give them credit for. That awareness, that basic common sense, reminds us that democracies can reassert legislative control over rogue dictators, whether mayors, governors, presidents, or prime ministers. Rational legislatures can choke off funding that supports few and harms many. They can initiate investigations, spur criminal prosecutions, and restore freedom. Even without government engagement, it is ordinary people who can rescue us from tyranny. We can say no to compliance with jabs for work, no to sending children to school with forced testing and masking, no to censored social media platforms, no to buying products from the companies bankrupting and seeking to control us. These actions are not easy, but living with the consequences of inaction would be far harder. By calling on our moral courage, we can stop this march towards a global police state. I founded Children's Health Defense, CHD, long before COVID-19. Our goal was to put an end to the epidemic of childhood diseases arising from toxic exposures of all types, including some vaccines. CHD seeks to educate the public and hold bad actors accountable in order to help ensure a healthy future for our children. As this audiobook is released, the campaign to force unsafe COVID vaccines into children's bodies is reaching its peak. If our children are to enjoy the blessings of liberty and health, we must end this COVID-19 nightmare. We can no longer trust the experts or follow their warped version of science. That's what got us here. With the information in this audiobook, I hope you'll educate others, engage more effectively with your local government, school board, health department, legislators, police, and often more promising, your elected sheriff. CHD has chapters around the country and the world. Join any of many health freedom groups. Sign up for the free Children's Health Defense online news site, The Defender. Stay informed. Stay active. We can jettison this insanity if enough people refuse to participate in a new apartheid based upon forced medical procedures. The United States still suffers from the brutal and ugly history of slavery, segregation, racism, and, alas, forced medical procedures. Let us not start this all over again, condemning African Americans more than any other racial group to second-class citizen status. As I was writing this book, I reread Martin Luther King Jr.'s majestic I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial in 1963. Reverend King reaches out to us through all these years when he said, But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. We have also come to this hallowed spot 
to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Join with us to take back our democracy and our freedom. I'll see you on the barricades. Robert F. Kennedy, Jr. Author's Note Though this audiobook appears to end here, it cannot end here, since the story is far from over. Every day brings new information, new data, new revelations, and new whistleblowers. Accordingly, I will continue writing chapters and making them available via the Children's Health Defense 